0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hold
2: your ears, folks.
1: It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no
3: monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring.
4: Turn it off.
5: My friends, I'm not given to wild and supported
1: statements.
6: And I tell you that we must evacuate this planet immediately.
1: Jor-El be
6: reasonable once there was a civilization much like ours but with a greater intelligence greater powers and a greater capacity for good That world was destroyed. But there was one survivor. Now, wouldn't that be all get out? Because of the wisdom and compassion of Jorel, because he knew the human race had the capacity for goodness, he set us his only son. His name is Kal-El. He will call himself Clark Kent. But the world will know him as Superman. This year, Superman brings you the gift of flight. Superman the movie.
0: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Mike Thompson. This is no fantasy. And making his debut in the Projection Booth
7: is Mr. James Lawrence. Hi, everybody. This is a a, a truly great honor to, to be on such an established podcast, and uh, I'm very, very much looking forward to today's discussion.
0: On this special episode, we are looking at Superman the Movie. Released in 1978, the film stars Christopher Reeve as the titular Man of Steel. It's neither bird nor plane, but the story of a man whose father gave his only begotten son to the people of Earth and his travails in the mortal realm. He's out to fight for truth, justice, and the American way by foiling an elaborate real estate scam set up by Lex Luthor, played by the one and only Gene Hackman. I'm not sure if it is possible to spoil this film, but we are going to try our darndest. So if you haven't seen Superman, turn off the podcast, come back after you have, we will still be here. So, James, I think you may be the youngest person on this episode. When was the first time you saw Superman and what did you think?
7: That's twice in the week I've been complimented for my age. I am pushing 40, by the way. <laughs> there is a very distinct possibility that Superman could be one of the first films I ever saw, with this being 1978. I, I was born in 1983, so my, my film education primarily came from terrestrial television before the cinema. Um, and we were very lucky in the UK at the, at the kind of mid to late 80s that we were starting to see things like Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, a majority of the Indiana Jones films, and the Superman films were quite a regular placement on, on terrestrial television. And I, I wouldn't have understood what I was really watching, but the idea of someone in a cape um, flying around and, and getting up to saving people's lives and, and just being the, the, the titular good guy um, w- was something that I was I was kind of in awe of. And then... Obviously, the the sequels came and and there was a lot more interest in those. once I had a a kind of grip on what Superman actually was. And uh, obviously, there uh, there is a lot to the film that a a young mind wouldn't necessarily be able to take on board. Uh, I really never really understood the Lex Luthor character and and what his motivations were. But as a budding young cinephile, um, Superman was definitely one that kind of lit the fuse for me
8: personally. How about you, Mike? Clearly, I was older. <laughs> having been born in 1971, I remember seeing it in the theater. But it's interesting when I think back now. My memories of Superman as a child—you know, the movies as a child—are all about Superman too. At the time, I think when I watched it, I liked it. But I also know that the way my mind was working back then was, well, that's fine, but it's not Star Wars, so whatever. <laughs> but then when the second one came out, and you know, you and I just talked about this recently, Mike. When the second one came out, that was the movie for me. And then I became much more of a Superman fanatic, at least for that time in my life. Um And it wasn't until years later that I really revisited the first one. Because it's like But I do remember distinctly as a kid, I was not like everybody else. I just moved to a new city, and Superman was the movie for all these kids in the school that I was in. And I just was like, yeah, well, that's fine. But you guys understand this isn't Star Wars, right?
0: Yeah, I was very much like you. I saw Superman 2 probably first and saw it theatrically or maybe at a drive-in. Uh, James and I talked a little bit about this on his podcast, the Iron Sequel podcast. We'll probably be not talking too much about the sequel just because he and I talked about it for Couple hours (laughs) on the Iron sequel. But while I was doing research for that, I was also having to do research for the first Superman film. And I was just like, okay, yeah, let's do this. Let's talk about this movie because this one is one that was around a lot also as a kid. I remember my folks went to see this Superman the movie and I was kind of pissed that I didn't get to go see it. And I remember this more as like a cable thing and then especially as a TV thing. And it's amazing for years and years, there was the TV cut of it, which you could just basically get on VHS tapes and people had recorded it off of, I don't know, ABC, like back in the early eighties or whatever, like early VCR type days. And now that it's available officially It's amazing to watch that version and be like, oh, yeah, I knew all this stuff. I pretty much memorized this while I was watching the TV version the first time. So there were things like Lex Luthor having, I don't know, tigers or lions or something. We never really see what they are. The babies is what he calls them. We don't ever see what that is. But then I'm like, oh, yeah, of course that's there. But I know I'm not going to see it in this version. It's in another one. So it's this weird effect of, like, what is in the film and what isn't in the film.
8: That was the experience I had when I was just watching the three-hour version on that Blu-ray, you know, listening to the commentary for the main movie and then going to the deleted scenes and and not really realizing, oh, wait, the stuff with the babies was deleted? Because I remember that distinctly as a kid.
6: Otis. Yes? Did you feed the babies?
1: Not, Not today, Mr. Luthor. Otis feed the babies mr littledo please
8: oh that's that's one of the few things I do remember but it's clearly I must be remembering it the same way you're saying Mike which is I must have seen that on TV or I must have seen that on cable not in the theater it's, it's crazy to think
7: personally or saying with it being one of the first films I watched and you both just talking about Luther's babies then brings back quite a few memories because it must have been the television cut that I first watched because obviously within – I'm sure it's – well, it's exactly the same in the US is that we were absolutely peppered with, with advert breaks. What seemed like it would have been a normal runtime for a film was – <laughs> kind of <laughs> doubled up exponentially through these through advert breaks, and it seemed way longer than it actually was. And the, the main watch I had for this was was the, the the extended cut. Um, and and it's it's been interesting to see the differences between what I actually remember from being a child as to what I watched this time around. Well, then it's weird too because I have a, a DVD of what I didn't know was
0: the director's cut. So as I'm watching that, I'm just like. I don't necessarily remember this scene as vividly as I remember other things. It's like this weird kind of distant echo of like, oh yeah, I remember that this is a thing, but it's not as, as loud to me, let's say as what I really remember. And then, go to find out oh yeah no donner cut back in a few things when they release this on dvd i'm oh okay Yeah, you know, which version are you watching now are you watching the tv version are you watching the theatrical version are you watching the director's cut version and yeah just it, it's wild to know that there are all of these out there i'm glad that there are sites like movie censorship.com where it will take you through everything and be like no this is part of this one this is over here like while I was watching the beginning of the film, there's this whole thing of sending a guard to Jarrell and Lara's place, basically, I guess their apartment on Krypton, <laughs> where, hey, they're using way too much power. They must be have you know, they're, they're probably growing pot over there or something. We got to send this guy over. And this guy, he also reminded me of like a, a snow trooper from Empire Strikes Back. Right. And I was watching it recently, and I was like, wait a second, where's the snowtrooper? Where is this guy? And then I saw another version where they send him, and I was like, oh, okay, there he is. I'm like, but wait, where's the part where he's almost there and the whole planet is being destroyed and he turns red? You know, where is that? So that's in the TV cut. So it's like, oh my God, how many different versions of this thing are there? But it sounds like there's the three. It's just a matter of like, what do you remember and what do you strongly associate with?
8: That guy was one of the things I do remember as a kid, because I remember him n- distinctly not being in the movie, because I I know I was going through like a Starlog magazine or something like that. And there was the picture of him. And it was and I was and I remember being irritated about it <laughs> because I was just like, he looked because as a kid, I was like, he looks cool. Where's that guy? <laughs> and then even what you're saying, like the other day when I, I had never seen that part, because I must have seen. When I watched it on TV or saw it on TV, I must not have seen all of it just didn't resonate. Because watching this three hour version the other day, I'm like, oh, I don't remember him flying through Krypton and turning red, and then you seeing his eyes like bulge out like in Mad Max.
0: It is totally a Mad Max moment. Yeah, I <laughs> thought the exact same thing. <laughs> Toe Cutter just got his.
7: That's it. That's it. <laughs> we sometimes lament. The, the impact that that Star Wars has actually had on cinema and, and fan culture as a whole, but when when I was when I was having this rewatch and, and the suits, for example, um, they're the, the kind of that shiny aluminium, almost glow like suits, and 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 a lot of what Superman actually is within the, the the first act on on Krypton. Would the vision for this have happened if it wasn't for Star Wars and, and what that kind of laid out? Um, it, it's it's crazy to think that that, like I say, the impact on. It, it had on such a thing as just a comic book film as well. Um, I, I think it, I was, when I was doing my research, there was a few people that were saying the, the lightsabers and, and the kind of how the lightsaber came to be was, was replicated in the suits on, on Krypton.
0: Yeah, those little tiny glass balls, I guess that's, you know, when you shine the light against a lightsaber, they would have that type of effect. And it was very much that same effect of all of the Kryptonian clothes. I I do love that effect, and I love when they turn red as the planet is being destroyed. Star Wars, I think, definitely helped push this movie into production, though I think that they were talking about it maybe a little bit before Star Wars. Obviously, Superman he's been part of pop culture since his inception. He's been on serials. So he's been in the movies. He's had TV shows. He's had cartoons. He, uh, there's one documentary I was watching about Superman where there were dog puppets that were playing all of the characters from the Daily Planet. <laughs> he was he was on I mean he was on radio. The whole thing of him being on radio, I think that's when the Daily Planet was first came about. So Daily Planet wasn't part of the comic series, but it came about because of the radio series. And that's also I want to say it was the radio series where they used that in order to defeat the KKK over here because they would mock things that were going on with the Ku Klux Klan so much and basically give away all of their secrets, but through Superman, which was fantastic that it's you know this creation by these two Jewish guys and here they're using it as this surreptitious way in order to destroy
8: the KKK as much as they possibly could. I'm vaguely familiar with it. There's a comic book about it and it's one of, the 4 billion comic books on my list to still read the
5: name of the graphic novel is superman smashes the clan
8: but it goes to show the the,
7: the impact that that comics had in in the 30s and 40s um because there was only one real news item of the time and, and that was world war 2 so what do you want the ultimate hero to do you want them to defeat the bad guys and obviously that's stepped over into the 50s and 60s as they say the the, the rise of the kkk and 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 A kind of underground white supremacist movement who is the most ideal person to deal with this is going to be the man of steel (laughs) or or to a lesser extent captain america as, as, as we've seen in other comics i always like
0: that superman plays on so many of these tropes of like you know the whole idea of putting him in the ship and sending him off to the other planet is very moses it's also very hercules there's a lot of hercules that you can see in the Superman story, and it's just that whole idea of, like, recycling these stories, you know, like, you could, obviously when you get to, like, a Brian Singer Superman, you're really seeing the whole Christ metaphor come through super strongly on that, but You know, I mean, really you could say, well, Christ was just kind of a recycle of Moses, who was a recycle of, of Hercules. And I'm sure there were people before that as well, telling these stories in all of these different ways. I forgot to talk about the cartoons that were out there, the Max Fleischer cartoons, which were just fucking amazing. I love those, the look of them. And again, playing with the news of the day and having their mad scientists look like Nikola Tesla and stuff. It's just like they, it was, Brilliant, brilliant stuff. For me, though, I what I think really led to the movie was, one, like you were saying, James, Star Wars and the whole idea of we can now do these special effects. We can probably make you believe that a man can fly. The other thing, oddly enough, I think was there was a musical called It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman from, I want to say, 66, which won a lot of Tony Awards. And they brought it back on TV in 75. And interestingly enough, some of the people that were in that actually uh, screen tested for Superman the movie. Which, And I think the guy who wrote that musical actually is one of the credited screenwriters of Superman. So it was weird that this would have that type of effect. But I guess it was popular enough that people saw, oh, this is a thing we can, we can make money off of this. Let's, let's
8: do this thing. Because money. Oh, money. I love money. Yeah. 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 We'd make a bunch of it. But that's also true to the character himself. He is this thing that comes back. You know, he's always present in pop culture, but his popularity seems to resurge like every 10 years is it's like, okay, it's, it's everybody is ready, and everybody is ready for Superman again.
0: <laughs> Which was a weird thing when they all everybody wanted to do was kill Superman. <laughs>
8: <laughs> that was how you remind people that you needed him.
0: <laughs> but yeah, even as we're recording this, there's a brand new Superman TV show out there. I've only watched the first episode of it so far. I enjoyed it, but I'm curious to see where it goes. And since this movie, Superman the Movie in 78, we've had him on TV with – What, Lois and Clark, Smallville. There was a Krypton, a new Krypton show, I think. Obviously, there were cartoons, tons of cartoons. You know, I grew up watching the Justice League cartoon series. So it's just so many – or sorry, Super Friends cartoon series. There's just so many different iterations from this. You're right. He just always comes back. He's always being regenerated.
8: I remember there was a comic in years and years and years ago – where if i remember correctly it was like it was like a, a what if kind of comic even though that what if is marvel and, and superman's dc but it was what if superman had never existed if i remember correctly the gist of the comic was he would have just had to have been created the world was invaded by aliens and superman wasn't here to defend us and these two kids created him, and i think through force of will and i'm probably remembering this all wrong but it was they just brought him to life because that was what the world needed so weird science <laughs> Nobody gives a fuck about Superman. You don't give a fuck about Superman, even if you think you do.
0: It's like Mark Millar with uh, Red Sun, where what if the ship had landed in Russia rather than in Kansas? And he gets raised by these farmers in Russia and then eventually becomes like the right-hand man of Stalin. Eventually, you know, Stalin dies and he becomes the leader of the Soviet Union. There's this uh, thing in there which the first time I read it, I was like, I don't know if I buy this or not because you're talking about if you know it's that line about if God didn't exist, we would have to create him. If with Superman existing in Russia, suddenly there's a Russian Batman as well. Oh, and a Russian <laughs> Wonder Woman. And a, yeah, I, I think she is from Thermos Thereskiema, Ther- but she. Definitely shows up in Russia, yeah, and they have kind of an affair, and Lois Lane is married to Lex Luthor, and Luther is uh, basically becomes president, which is this weird idea of this guy who um, is really super rich and becomes president, and he just has this agenda of destroying everything. I don't know. That is completely out of left field. I don't know how that could ever happen.
7: Never seen anything like that. Hard to even imagine. Only in the comic books. The Superman the movie is... The, the origin story doesn't get any better than what we've seen on screen. Whereas every now and again, obviously we get the Singer reboots and we get the the uh, Snyder reboots as well. We know the origin story; everybody knows Superman's origin story, and it would be quite good to play with these. Like you say that the Red the Red Sun storyline. Let's let's play with this because there are only so many shots you can have of of lingering in a wheat field or a cemetery and, and they're good, like don't get me wrong, even in the Snyder ones which I've watched recently, even though it is quite bombastic in, in terms of scope and, and, and what it's portraying on screen but the, the kind of somber moments have done well but they've also been done to death and I'm sure we'll talk about it later on with, with, with Unsworth's cinematography in Superman the movie, it doesn't get any better than that, I,
8: I don't know
7: why we need to see this again
8: I rediscovered Superman the movie right when Superman Returns was going to come out because, you know, I, was, I saw that trailer. I was super excited for that movie. I realized now and realized a little bit then, but certainly now that it was just the fact that they were using the original music that got me so excited. <laughs> um, And so, but I was like, you know what? I haven't seen this movie in forever. I want to watch this again. Everything on Krypton, everything in Smallville. And I realized watching it the other day, like, that's the part I kept watching over and over again, not the stuff in Metropolis, because it's a to- it's like a totally different movie, but it's just the grandeur of it. It's like watching a John Ford Western. I mean, it's just mm. the shots are incredible. And the other thing is even watching it now I was like, you know what? I bet most of that's real. Like, <laughs> like, there's not like they didn't they didn't have to, that's not two people standing in front of a green screen and then making this magic later. Yes, there's some of that. But that's mostly the flying. Like, they're really in Canada right now <laughs> shooting this thing. And it looks amazing.
0: This is like three movies all put together, but even before that first movie on Krypton begins, you have that incredible opening of those red curtains opening and the little kid narrating the Superman story, taking us into the comic book, and then the idea the camera lifting up, seeing the Daily Planet, and then going past the Daily Planet, and then that music. I got goosebumps just thinking about it. That music... Oh, my God. John Williams' score to this is just one of the best things in the world. I love it. And they know what they're doing by playing this entire Superman suite, before we even get to Krypton. These opening credits take forever, but I am there for it. I am all about these credits flying at me, flying away, us going through this whole galaxy, taking this journey from Earth to Krypton. And it's ironic because we get that trip. I think we get a return trip with the baby, and then we get another return back to Kind of out into space when Jarell actually speaks with Kalil the first time. So it's like we again go out into space with this. But my God, that first journey in the, when those credits hit you and you're going through this whole star field, all of this craziness with these little, um, you know, explosions and the way that the lights are shifting around, just everything. Oh, it is, it is one of my favorite opening
8: credit sequences. Yeah. I've, I rewatch and listen to that just that five minutes regularly (laughs) because, because it's Donner talks about that on the, on the commentary about how like, like, well, this is a long credit sequence. And nowadays, you know, we would never do this. The credits are all at the end because nobody wants to sit through this because, and I agree with that decision, but at the same time, it's the right decision for this movie. It's, it's, you know, you're, you're, they're literally like, yep, here's the comic book. And now we are taking you out. Now we're taking you literally from the comic book into this movie, into this whole other Medium that, that is, and it's even, you know, even bigger and grander than what you've seen before. And it's a promise that the movie totally lives up to.
0: We're playing with time so much in this film because we are starting when Superman is new right around the time that that first action comics is out there. That's when we start the movie with this kid reading this stuff to us. And then we go out into space, we come back and we're suddenly, what would it be? The 1950s, I guess is when it is because there's a line that Jorel says after he talks with Jeff East as Clark Kent, he's like 20 of your earth years or 18 of your earth years have passed since we Basically says we started talking. <laughs> you know, he's a very long winded guy. <laughs> Don't worry about bathroom breaks or going to get food or anything like that. We're son. We got to talk for 18 years. And so then that takes us up to present day, 1978, which is just amazing that we can go through all of these time periods and they just make it flow so easily.
7: Well, you make it, you make an interesting point on, on the, the actual pages to screen because obviously th- th- this is. Way out of my 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 age time, but from from what I've been reading about, that Superman was effectively a bit of a joke in the seventies in comic print. It was being lampooned. Comic book sales plummet plummeting, and it. When you read all this information, it does seem like quite a risk to pump so much money into a character that it, it, is it going to pay off or not? And if I would have been at the opening um, at the, the, the premier screening in Washington after those opening credits you're in and that I would have stood up and applauded um, you, you know you're in safe hands as soon as Donna flies up on screen with those uh, luminous blue letters it's like right we're in safe hands I know this is going in the right direction It was very interesting
0: the way that they shot this thing. You know, we were talking so much about this like three hour version of Superman, the movie. And one of the reasons why we had that was because of what James and I, what you and I talked about just a few months ago was this idea of shooting Superman one and two back to back, which I don't think was necessarily done too much at that time, but this definitely was one of those cases. It was very smart because, you know, they recycled some things from Superman 1 right into Superman 2, but it was just really odd to read. I was reading a lot of articles from the time, and one of them was, um, I think it was, a, oh, I can't remember the name of the magazine, but they were interviewing Donner and uh he was just like yeah you know we we got to get back to work you know we we've had this premiere they had a premiere around christmas time 1978 it was originally supposed to open in may but the production was so rough that it ended up having to be pushed until uh christmas which is appropriate and then this whole thing where he's like yeah we got to get back we you know there's still a lot that we need to shoot and then at the end of this article is just like March 15th, a communique from the Salkins came over to Donner and told him that he was no longer needed for Superman 2. It's like, holy shit. This was earlier than I ever paid attention to movie news, so I had no idea when I saw Superman 2 that there was a... Have troubled production. I had no idea that Donner was asked to leave. It took me so many years to find that stuff out. But it's still just amazing to go back and read these things and just several articles where it's just like, you know, uh, is Christopher Reeve going to agree to work with Richard Lester now? Is Margot Kidder going to agree to work with him? Are they bound by their contracts? You know, just all of these things of like, just that Donner got really fucked over by the Sulkins, and it's amazing that anything really came together. It's amazing that Superman 2 even exists.
8: We could do a whole episode on the parallels between how they were able to cobble together Superman 2 versus what happened with Justice League from a few years ago. But, uh, <laughs> but that's a different that, that's a different story. It, it was similar for me. Like I had no idea what a troubled production was when, <laughs> when Superman 2 came out. Like for me. And and for years, I think I thought it was much more of, oh, well, Richard Lester came in there and saved the day because that movie, again, like my memory is that movie is just so much better. You revisit it now and you're like, no, it's not. It's just it's like the first movie, everything about the first movie is so much tighter and greater and more significant than the second movie. But yeah, to your point, it's just it, it is fascinating to me because now you do hear much more of, okay, we're gonna be shooting these movies back to back because we're gonna save all this money. Like back then. You know, even thinking about it now, listening to this these guys talk and say like this was a fifty five million dollar production. It's like, good God, I mean, that was the seventies, you know <laughs> like for that much money and, and and to your point, like we're we're gonna take this risk on this character. I mean, I understand that Star Wars was a hit, but this wasn't Star Wars. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, like James was saying, the comic book character was kind of a joke. You know, this is not the golden age or silver age of comics. You know, we're we're like back in the Bronze Age when it comes to the 1970s of
8: these comic titles. Right. And, and the most popular Batman was Adam West. And that's what people, you know, that's what people would be, to a certain extent, I can't imagine that's what people would be expecting, right? It's like, And it does sound like the original 500-page draft that Puzo put together was much more of this sort of campy thing. But then Donner comes in and is like, at least the, my impression is Donner comes in and is like, no, we need to restructure this. This is not who Superman is to me. And he has that. He's not, a, I understand he might be a joke for everybody else, but he's not a joke to me and we're not going to present him that. It's a testament to to Donner as
7: well. And, and, and let's say the vision taking what is quite obvious, a bloated script from, from Mario Puzo. And we're obviously in the infancy of, of cinematic universes and and this film's linked to this and this film's linked to that but how many films can you think of where the second film is already set up within the first scene of the original film and again that that shows me how serious donna was actually taking the film is that he wanted to respect the source material but also give his own modern spin on it um and and yeah i i think he did a, a, a superb job with with the, the extremely tight limitations that he already was under. There's one story that
0: I read that Donner told, and then Christopher Reeve told it in another interview with Donner. And it is that one of the original scenes that they had in this Puzo draft, or it might have been after Leslie Newman came in and worked on it, that Superman is out looking for Lex Luthor. And he sees a bald head in a crowd, and he goes and he grabs this guy. And it's fucking Telly Savalas as Kojak, who turns around and says, who loves you, baby, and hands him a a lollipop. If that was Adam West, yeah, I can see that kind of stuff. That would have been like, you know, when Colonel Clink showed up
8: on on Batman, which made no sense at all, you know. <laughs> but well, if it was if it was Adam him. if it was Adam West, that's what you would have expected, right? Like if 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 it had been Adam West and Kojak hadn't shown up, everybody would have been like, "Well, where was Kojak?" <laughs> There's got to be a Kojak
0: joke somewhere. You got a bald character. The thing that I love is there is humor. But it's not too much and they know when to put that humor in there. Like there's, there's no humor in this opening part, which needs to be deadly serious. This whole thing that takes place on Krypton, the whole thing of Jarel. It is interesting how time moves in this, how it's like Jarel. Uh, You know, having these three criminals on trial, sends them off into the Phantom Zone, and then basically it's like he turns around and the rest of the people are there like, hey, good job. Now let's talk about how the planet's going to not blow up because we don't believe you, jor The timing on that is always a little questionable as far as how that happens, but at least, you know, it's not like now we have to see a day in the life of jor It's basically, let's get this movie going. Hey, we don't believe that. You know, your predictions about the Krypton sun expanding and and destroying the planet. We don't buy that at all. And he's like, okay, great. Well, Lara and I, we're not going to, we're not going to leave the planet. Trust me. We're going to stay right here with that whole nod and wink that he's going to send off his son. So, okay, that's great. I do love the stateliness of this. I love this world that they create, this whole idea of. Everything being crystalline. I love the idea of the, um, the S on his chest, not standing for Superman, that it's this family crest and that everybody has these different alien characters on their, on their chest, that they all have their different houses that are represented by these things. I mean, it's really, really smart the way that they're doing that and kind of building it into this world. And I don't know exactly how much of it came from the comics versus how much of it is coming from like, Tom Mankiewicz and Richard Donner and the rest of the writers, you know, but I thought it was really well done the way that they did
8: that. I feel like most of it came from Mankiewicz and Donner. The big reboot of Superman in the comics, where they kind of reimagined the look of Krypton, that was in like 1986, as far as I remember, right? And the, the S was like, in the comics, that was the, you know, his mother, his his Earth mother made him that suit. She made it out of material, she made it out of the material that, uh, that they got from the, you know, that was in the rocket. So that came from, I can't remember if they named him Superman or Superboy or whatever, and they gave him that crest, but 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 what you're saying, like to take it and make it the, you know, his family crest from Krypton to make it that part of him is so much smarter and stronger and more interesting than just like, Oh no, put an S on him. Cause you know, he's Superman. (laughs) it means more to him when it comes from that place,
7: and it leads to Lois as well having that kind of Eureka moment where Ah, it's the S, right? Okay, and that that kind of you know sets things off within the narrative within Metropolis as well. It's it, I, I completely agree. It's it's a very very well done little tidbit, and it would be very interesting to see. I know we again we, we'll talk about modern pop culture as well, but when we're in the people need to know answers of, of law and origin stories, it would be kind of cool to know what some of the other symbols kind of meant and whether, you know, would there be some kind of uh, other arch nemesis um, to Superman's throne that has a symbol that means the complete opposite, like, like D for destroyer, you know, something like that is, it'd be quite interesting to see whether someone's put as much thought into it as they did with a, a simple S.
0: Yeah. Because we don't see general Zod or Ursa or Nan, with their crests, they're wearing their own, I guess, military uniforms. And I would imagine that they are more from a military branch than uh Jor-El, and the rest of them seem to be like the elders of Krypton. So they dress in a completely different way. And to your point, we've got that snowtrooper type guy who has no crest at all, so he's just you know like a janitor or something. And they're like, "Hey, we we have you here. We're gonna like kind of teleport you, but we're not gonna teleport you to Jarrell's place. So you're gonna have to go through all these corridors in order to get
8: there." Literally just sending you on your way. <laughs> Good luck. Go get him. If you really want to get
7: into it, it could be some kind of almost like a metaphor for for social hierarchy like the, the, the people with the symbols uh, uh, that like say the the rulers of the planet and all the other people are, are just the kind of like foot soldiers minions it's it really does just such a simple scene really does kind of get quite a lot of um uh, talk going it's, it's really really fantastic one that they're too blind to accept
0: Jarrell's science. It's like I think they say we agree with your your methods, but it's the conclusion that we disagree with. So
8: it's not that I question your data; it's your conclusions we find unsupported. <laughs> it's just shifting in its
0: orbit. Don't worry; right. everything will be fine.
8: In less than like an hour it's really not fine <laughs> that's how it feels it feels like okay this man this is yours he leaves and it's like we got to get him out of here right now okay <laughs> like
0: what is interesting to me this whole idea of them being all clad in white and coming from the stars and just this whole idea of like them being angels you know it's very very like i've talked about the religious overtones of superman and it feels very much like Jarrell is if he's not god he's at least this higher power this angel who's able to talk to kal-el from beyond the grave and i've always wondered like are those interactions all pre-recorded or is it his actual spirit that is talking to kal-el it's it's very interesting to think about that and then the way that the world, their world, Krypton becomes hell and the whole coloring of red, because we're going to get that again when Superman is saving Lois Lane, him going into the bowels of the earth, trying to get this rocket and set the fault line back up and all this kind of stuff. He basically goes to hell. And then when you think about Lex Luthor, I mean, he lives 200 feet below Park Place. You know, he is in the subterranean. He basically is a devil living underneath Metropolis, trying to manipulate things in the above world. We see him above ground a few times, mostly when it comes to, well, in the sequels, but mostly when it comes to him trying to get these rockets and set the coordinates up. But for the most part, he's set in one set. He is down below in his caverns.
8: The whole, you know, pretty much the whole movie. I was so struck by when Jarrell is saying that line about how, and I'm, I give them to you, my only son. Like it's like there's, it totally works, but at the same time, I'm thinking there's no subtlety about that at all. Like this is, I'm sending, I'm sending Jesus to you guys. Like, that's that's what's happening. Here.
0: Poor Lara, I don't even think she gets much of a, a line at all. She just con- tries to contradict him,
8: and then that's about it. And they talked about that a little bit on the commentary. It was <laughs> That was rough because they cause they do say, like, she was – she's like, well, I don't get to say anything. It's like, well, yeah, we're paying Marlon Brando like three and a half million, so he gets to say everything. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like, eh, that's not great.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's amazing that they got the performance out of Brando that they did because it sounds like he was just more than difficult to work with every time.
8: Have you seen that old interview with Christopher Reeve on David Letterman?
3: We've had two other people on the show who've worked with Marlon Brando, and I know you worked with him for a few days. Mm. And uh, anything interesting come of that uh, relationship? I must say, I don't, I don't say this to be vicious, but I don't worship at the altar of Marlon Brando because I feel that he's copped out in a certain way. He's no longer in the leadership position that he could be. He could really be inspiring a whole generation of actors and by continuing to work. But what happened is the press loved him, whether he was good, bad, or indifferent, mm-hmm. where people thought he was this sort of... Institution, no matter what he did. So he doesn't care anymore. And I just think it would be sad to be 53 or whatever he is, and I give a damn, that's all. I just think it's too bad that the man has kind of been forced into that hostility. Well, he's here tonight, Chris. <laughs> listen that's not something that's something that i would say to him as well i don't i don't want to be accused of talking out of school you know okay. but he could be a real leader for for us yeah was it an exciting to work with him though? not really no <laughs> no i had a wonderful time but the man didn't care i'm sorry he just you know took the two million and ran you know yeah hmm. so uh,
9: interesting. i just
3: still care i'm a real beginner and i just care so much that it hurts when someone's phoning it in yeah uh, he is a wonderful actor he's a brilliant man but at this moment He just isn't uh, motivated. That's all I mean to say.
8: It was impressive to me that even at you know this point in his career, he's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that this was a great experience for me. So I was expecting more of that kind of stuff in the commentary, but those guys were far more respectful and and sort of you know you know they do tell the story about how Brando wanted to be like a a green suitcase or a donut or something or a bagel. That's right, it was a bagel. And then they were like, no, he was just you know he was just joking around with us. And all I can think of when I'm listening is. Was he though? Like I don't, like, I, don't I don't know what, maybe he really did want to do that.
7: That kind of goes to show how good Brando was, is that he's he's got this script in front of him and obviously they're chucking this unlimited amount of cash at him. And it's right, you're wearing a, a, a luminous suit. Um you're gonna speak in this kind of almost Shakespearean language, you live in a crystal castle. And he he knocks it out of the park. Fair play to him. You know we 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 started kind of taking the mick at some of the decisions and and um, options that he, he put to the table. But he does a fantastic job, really. And it's even better when he's the floating kind of all seeing, all knowing head. I, I do enjoy that 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 aspect of Brando as well.
8: For everything I just said, for everything Christopher Reeve said, <laughs> it's still it's still this. You know, he is so utterly credible as this character. I believe everything that he is saying. And even when he, like, when he starts to you know, get emotional over the fact that I'm letting you go, or even when he, Superman is talking to him about the first time he revealed himself, the way he acts there, he's like, and you enjoyed it. Well, so be it. You know, like, it's so, it's so, it feels so fatherly. <laughs> like the knowing father of, yep, this is what happened, but it's okay. And I'm letting you know that it's okay.
0: I think everybody listening probably knows that Brando didn't like to memorize his lines and that he would just read his lines. The whole thing of like him in the back of the car with Rod Steiger, the whole I like, could have been a contender thing. Like you see him looking around and apparently they had all of his lines up in the, the top of the vehicle set that he was on. And the same thing, I think Donner and even talk about it on the commentary that inside of the space capsule was all of his lines so that's why he looks in there and he just kind of reads them and and brings them to life right then which is just amazing that he hasn't practiced these things at all just it is what it is it sounds like he's just thinking of it on the spot because he basically has just read it on the spot
8: i think you talked about like that was his intention it's like i want it to feel like this is the first time i'm saying these things because it's the first time the character would be saying and thinking these things
7: so it's a fantastic way of doing things. There must be some points when he, when he's reading the lines, he's like, what the bloody hell am I reading here? And he just goes with it. And he does this thing where he's like a master procrastinator, just kind of looking around, like takes that millisecond to click, and he's like, all right, I'll do it this way. It's, it's, it's such a unique way of acting. And it works for him.
0: So we've got Space Dad of Marlon Brando, and then earth dad of glenn ford and again you can't get better than glenn ford talk about a completely different acting style but my goodness like Both of these guys, you're just like, wow, I wish this was my dad, like one or the other, or maybe a combination of both, because Glenn Ford with his whole folksy way, when he's talking with, with Clark about like, yeah, you got all these powers and you think that you're going to bust. I mean, just all those lines, everything that he says, you're just like, wow, yeah, this guy really understands his son who is Not from this world who, who knows what is inside of him? uh, Where do these powers come from? But yet he seems to be able to maintain this relationship with this basically alien creature that he's brought into his house and is treated like a son for 15, 20 years now.
8: And he does it in a way where it's totally believable to me that this alien creature would listen to him. You're right. I can do all these things, but you're right. I'm not here to score touchdowns. I'm here for something greater. That's so much of the core of the character, and I think again, like the, the casting, the performances, the performance from Glenn Ford. It is this belief of this is where he landed, and these were the two perfect people to find him. Like this was absolute destiny that they would find him because they're what helped make him understand the importance of humanity, why he has to save all these people, why he loves all these people, all of them. From
7: uh, an Englishman. Looking outside in, into the kind of American way of why life, sorry, and it's almost as if the, the father son relationship is is something from like an insurance advert where it's you know it's it's, it's always like the arm around the shoulder um, and and you know it ends with a big message. But it, I, I I tend to find that the parents guide him rather than offering guidance if that makes any sense. So it is an arm around the shoulder, and it's, you're gonna have to make your own mistakes. You're going to figure things out yourself, and they're, they're clearly like God-fearing, um, God-fearing people, church-going people as well. And I think that plays into a lot of how they treat him with with kid gloves. But again, also let him make his own mistakes. That more so than the the, the point where the, the gang are bullying up on him, and he's he's down on the ground, and he's just saying, "I just wanted to hit him. I just wanted to hit him." And he said, "Well, you didn't, did you?" And then the camera cuts, and he's he's crushed a steel pole just through containing his rage. It's it, it's. It's almost like, yeah, it is like the ultimate father-son story in in some regards. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Glenn
0: Ford really only gets two scenes, right? It's him and Martha when they find the baby, and then it's him and Clark when they're walking up the driveway, and then he has his heart attack. I think that's it. That's amazing, because I feel like his presence is so much there in this, let's call it the middle movie of Clark growing up. But I guess it's just because he's Glenn Ford and can offer that. That one scene, I guess, is the most powerful scene in there when he's acting with Jeff East as young Clark Kent. Just, my God, he nails it. And then his death is one of the most tragic deaths that I've ever seen.
8: The way he said – and they talk about this in the commentary, but they're absolutely – and they're absolutely right. The way he says, oh, no, Mm. is just heartbreaking. You know, in that moment, it's like, this is it. It's too late. There's nothing any – there's nothing anybody can do, and he knows it, and it's awful. Like <laughs> It's just absolutely awful.
7: The film almost trusts the audience as well with – giving them just a snippet of information so when the truck initially breaks down it's like what's your ticker or like, you know she's uh, he's, he's being warned about his heart but now you you'd be reminded of that every five minutes like what's your heart take your pills check your heart monitor blah 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 and it's it's like you say as soon as he's walking up and you see the reaction on his face you're like right that's it game over this is this character's exit and it, the, the initial shot of 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 them walking away from from where Clark's just been bullied, it's it's just a beauty... And again, we're going to talk. I think on to cinematography. It's, it's it's almost like Days of Heaven. That's sort of, I know that might be quite an, an extreme comparison, but I don't
8: think so. Those,
7: no, <laughs> those lingering wide shots and it's 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 taking in every snapshot of scenery you can possibly get, and um, like just little things, and it, it really is just. It's a beautiful story and and it's like I say it's the ultimate motivation for him to to go off and find his own way and, and and be as good a person as he can be and they do a little bit of stunt casting in the film, but they do it in such a nice
0: way that if you didn't know what is it Kirk Allen and Noel Neal as like the original Superman and Lois Lane as young Lois Lane's parents, when she sees, young Lois sees Superman running next to the train, if he didn't know who those people were, it'd be like, okay, whatever. But if you know who they are, it's just like, oh, that's a nice little nod. That's really pretty cool that they did that. As opposed to like, let's stop the movie and force Lou Ferrigno to be here in this Hulk film.
8: Now, to be fair, he was with Stan Lee, so it was really smooth. There was nothing about that that was jarring at all. I feel like there are two things, right, that, that both of you just said that I'm the notion of we're going to put this in here, but we're not going to force it. And that leads back to this movie does do a lot of it, it. trusts the audience quite a bit. It does not hammer a lot of stuff down. It just puts it there and lets the audience take it for for what it is, whereas and and it is. It is, you know, especially now after what what are we like in year, it feels like year one million of all the superhero movies. Some of them do that, but not like this movie. This feels exactly like a, yeah, this movie was made in the 70s. This feels like a 70s movie with those kind of sensibilities Mm. that we don't have now.
7: Like in a modern film, you would probably get, a cut scene of, of, of Lois seeing Superman running down a street or something and then it'd go to a boom quick black and white flashback of that scene on the train watching some guy running and you know it, it, you just don't need it. it it disrupts the flow and it disrupts the storytelling by constantly having to remind you this happened half an hour before by the way and it, it's, it's not trusting your audience and and Again, this 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 comes down to Donna and how he wanted to tell the story. It's, it's taking a comic book character and making it accessible for children and adults alike. It doesn't it doesn't insult you with the constant reminders of, of A, B, and C. You know, when
0: I was a little girl, I was taking a train trip with my parents,
8: <laughs> <laughs> and I saw this guy running super fast. I wonder if that's the same guy. Hmm.
0: <laughs> I'll never forget him, you know, and when I told the story at school. they all made fun of me, and I've been tortured ever since yeah exactly. exactly but now
8: now i'm now I'm the person who who gets to interview him for the first time, and I think he's in love with me
0: <laughs> all those years ago, thank goodness none of that stuff is there, but yeah, you get Jeff East, and you're talking about that um the cinematography and yeah, I would say that the whole idea of making these scenes look like Andrew Wyeth paintings is 100% intentional when he and his mom are at the, the funeral for his dad, that, Beautiful shot with the church in the background, which I thought I heard might have been a miniature yeah
8: they they talk about that in the comments they say, if you walk right up to it it's about four feet high. Wow, <laughs>
0: that's amazing. It looks so good. I never would have guessed that that was not a real se- you know a
8: real setting like, like the commentary felt to me like two things it was it was a lot of very respectful talk of all the people who worked on it to make it look the way that it was. And then also a lot of Donner talking about how many of those people were dead now. <laughs> which which was a little uncomfortable. Because he said, Yeah, they're even at the end with the credits because yeah they're all gone. It's like oh, okay man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The work across the whole thing. You think about this like the set of Lex Luthor's lair. They wouldn't we wouldn't even build that now. Uh, put some water over there and put a bunch of green screens up. We'll be fine.
0: Oh, his layer is beautiful. I love it. And it, it looks like Grand Central Station. You know, just that same type of architecture. It just is fantastic. Yeah, that he has a pool that is a closed off gate is wonderful. That he has just the space. There's so much space in that place. It's just amazing.
7: We talk about the budget being, what, $55 million for... The late seventies is an eye watering amount if you were to add inflation and and come up with a number now. But every single penny is on screen. You can see every single or dollar, I should say, um, is, is on screen, and it's a wonderful layer. And it's it's not just the one aspect to it. It's it's kind of like a multifaceted. He's got his he's got his reading room. He's got his swimming pool. He's got his, his 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 sleeping area as well. And it's it, it's it's definitely one of the best villain layers
8: there's ever been in in cinema for my money. He's got his piano, he's got the babies. I mean, this is and it's just like what he says to Miss Tessmarker. Who wouldn't want to live here?
9: Miss
1: Tessmarker, how many girls do you know who have a Park Avenue address like this one?
5: Park Avenue address? Two hundred feet below?
1: Do you realize what people are shelling out up there for a few miserable rooms off a common elevator? What, what more, more could, could anyone ask? ask?
0: Well, yeah, and it shows his whole motivation, the idea of real estate, and that he knows that this is, like, prime real estate in Manhattan, obviously 200 feet below ground, but it's just one of the most amazing places where a person could live. I love the whole thing, too, of the uh rear projection of the beautiful beach scene as Miss Tessmacher's laying out and as he's uh swimming around it's just so great and i love when they hit the end of the film strips and then they start over again it's gorgeous after we get to the fortress of solitude and we have this exchange with Jarrell, and then we shift gears again and we're in a completely different movie And this is where a lot of movies would start. This whole idea of like him working at the Daily Planet. I mean, and again, I love the way that we're introduced to the Daily Planet, especially that we're introduced through Jimmy Olsen's lens, that it's him looking around and focusing and moving around and focusing. And that's where we, I think we get introduced to Lois Lane properly as Margot Kidder for the first time is him saying smile, Miss Lane. It's so great that.
7: That's the way that we get brought into the world of the Daily Planet. The way that I I, I looked at this this watch this time around, and the, the, the note that I made was that it's not a real world with superheroes in it. It's like the comic book pages have come to life, kind of going back to, I don't know, like Raimi's Spider-Man, for example, where it's... You're not enhanced beings in the real world. It is the world that they're in. If, if that makes any sense. And like you say, you're looking through the almost the camera eye. It's a comic book world. Almost all the characters, uh, uh you, you have the, the, the fist banging editor and you, you kind of have the clunky, uh, writer and the, the, the quippy, um, supervillain as well. And it's none of it takes itself too seriously. And, and I think that is one of the film's strongest points is that it is pages come to life is, is, is the be all and end all
8: when i came back to this in 2006 or whatever i found the shift from you know smallville to metropolis like too much for like that wasn't what i wanted to focus on you know because but mankowitz talks about it like it, it was a very conscious decision this is three different movies and when we leave smallville when we go to metropolis that's when it becomes a comic book you're going right into the comic it, it, the comic strip was wasted it was right into the comic strip world for a while it was very much like oh this you know that's not what i want but then you know rewatching it again it's like no, no, no! That's exactly what is supposed to happen. <laughs> like, like we had these other two things. The tone of those things is different because this is his journey, right? And this is where this is when he's this is what the world is like for for all of us now. Because now he's Superman. Well,
0: yeah, I love. I, I kind of skipped over this—the reveal of him in his costume. I mean, we are how far into this movie? We've seen sat through two pretty much full films here, and then when we get. Jarrell bringing him back to Earth, and it's just like, okay, now you're ready. You know, all of these years have passed, now you're ready. And there's Christopher Reeve in the background. It's, he's not even like center of the frame, not anywhere near mid shot. It is a long shot of him in the Superman costume. You hear that again, the music swells, you get that refrain, and you don't even get to see his face clearly. And I know that they said that that was a mistake, but I kind of think that it's the perfect mistake that he takes off and flies. And as his face should become clear. He actually goes through shadow and then off the screen and then cut to this third movie. And I want to say that when we cut, it is to the sound of horns and in, in traffic in metropolis slash New York city, which is just it, completely jarring. And you're just like, Oh my God, now it's a whole other movie. These horns are honking and boom, here we are with this new thing. It's, it's a great way to, really set you off and set you up for like, now we're in a new place. Now this is the, as you're saying, the comic strip movie. Now get ready for Otis walking down the street to this Incredible little theme that John Williams has come up with. Ned Beatty with his two short pants. His, uh, he's always eating stuff. He's got the two cops after him. They're French, you know, French connection type cops coming after this guy. I think Randy Jurgensen from the French connection and cruising is actually one of the cops that's down in the subway when they find Argus. You get him, you get Jimmy Olsen, who's just this like, Gee whiz kind of a kid, you know <laughs> just You get uh Margot kidder as Lois Lane, the reporter who can't spell. I love that running gag of her trying to spell stuff. It's like, you know, there's there's only one P in rapist
7: <laughs> And then it's always like horrible things that she's writing about. The character of Otis, um Ned Beatty to me is is one of the, the like one of the finest American character actors that the, has the, been in my money and it's it just makes me laugh whenever I think of his filmography because we, we we're in what 78 Superman play notice and then you go back a few years and it's Exodus two Mikey and Nikki, and network and all the president's men and Nashville and hes he's taken this and yeah, difference and he takes this like out of cuff sidestep and he's just playing this bumbling doge. Oh, he legs Luthor and he just excels in it. It's superb. It's it, every character and it, it's the same with Hackman as, as Luthor is my love of Hackman is, is Popeye Doyle uh, and, and Night Moves and he comes into this and his comic timing is exceptional. Absolutely like world class. And it's yeah, you, you just don't think of these like real hard ass a 70s American character actors taking this really light hearted comic book film, but they just run with it and they're the people that end up making the film as good as it is.
8: The interaction between the two of them when Otis pulls the cart away when he's get, getting the book and then he brings it back, and just the nice subtle way that Lex steps on his hand <laughs> as, he, as he has to pull it back. I mean, those are the kind of things like it's, and they, you know, Donner and Mankowitz talk about that in the commentary too. Like, Nobody expected the two of them to be able to do this. I mean, it's not a huge surprise in in the sense that, of course, they're brilliant actors, but you just didn't see them do anything like this before. And it's so good that you're just kind of like, how is this the first time we're ever seeing this?
0: Well, we can't sell Valerie Perrine short on this either, because she no, is not at all. so good in this role as Miss Tessmacher. And just she and Otis are so much on the same page. And it's like they're just kind of. Tolerating Lex because it feels like Lex is probably always going off and, you know, he's always spouting off how he's the greatest criminal mind of our time in these things. And they're just like, yeah, we've heard it all before. <laughs> just, <laughs> yes, but, but remember, life with him is never dull. Never dull. The chemistry there, the chemistry of um I was amazed to find out that Jackie Cooper was almost not Perry White because I just always that, that is the role for him for me, obviously, he'd been in movies since he was a little kid being in the little rascals, but I didn't know that Keenan Wynn was supposed to be in that that role, and he got really sick, it sounded like he might have had a heart attack when he first got there
8: to uh England. Yeah, that's right. They talk about that. He he, like he flew there. I, they talk about that. I, I read it somewhere, but yeah, he got there, and I think he had to go, like, had to go to the hospital as soon as they landed, maybe. And so then they called Jackie Cooper, and like the first question was, "Do you have a passport?" <laughs> because because that was the thing. If he didn't have one, that was like okay, because we're shooting like in two days or so. Well, that whole thing too, they were supposed to shoot all this stuff
0: down in Rome with Guy Hamilton. We talked a little bit about this, James, when we talked about Superman 2, that the whole idea of Donner coming out here, this wasn't his project. He didn't, this was not his baby at all. They just kind of said, hey, we can't shoot in Rome anymore, and Guy Hamilton can't be the director because he owes too many taxes in the UK. And I guess they would have arrested him or something had he gone back to the UK. So we're moving to Pinewood. We need somebody that can do this. How about we have this Donner guy, you know, he just had this hit with the omen. And I'm sure that Donner was not the second choice. I bet there were other people, and it just kind of landed with Donner. And he and Pierre – I can't remember his last name – the producer did not get on at all. And that was one of the reasons why Donner eventually was asked to leave. But one of the things that Donner was complaining about a lot in that commentary was, I didn't know how much money I had to spend. I didn't know about this. I didn't know about that. And like – Basically, started over with a lot of things, and it didn't sound like they even had Superman cast at that point. Like, as far as um, having the actual Christopher Reeve role filled, it sounds like he was he didn't discover Christopher Reeve. I love the idea that he says that God sent me
7: Christopher Reeve because you don't get much better than Christopher Reeve in this movie either. It does make me wonder how much input Guy Hamilton actually had into the initial script, if any, because the one thing that made me think about this is the the Hoover Dam scene, and it instantly made me think of Force 10 from Navarone, where it's got an almost... Obviously not shot for shot, because they're two completely different films, but it's a very Dam-centric <laughs> set piece, shall we say, um, with a lot of miniatures as well. Um, both could be in the same film, either either give or take. Um, but yeah, it, it, that that was my just my one little... Tidbit into Guy Hamilton was that the miniatures are very, very similar.
8: I've read Superman comics for a long time. I've read all these, you know, all this stuff for a long time. But like, you know, Christopher Reeve is Superman, just like Linda Carter is Wonder Woman. I, I like Gal Gadot, and and I like Henry Cavill too. But Christopher Reeve is Superman. <laughs> like, that's you know, that's what Superman looks like. That's what Superman sounds like. Maybe I could say, well, that's what you grew up with. And I, maybe, but I still think that there's. There's stuff that he does as the character. Like I was thinking about watching this in terms of his performance because he's, you know, and everybody knows this. He's he's giving two performances in this movie. You know, his Clark Kent and his Superman are vastly different people, different enough that you can almost really believe like, yeah, Lois wouldn't know that this is the same guy. Nobody would. Like, it's not just the glasses. It's the way he holds himself, the way he talks, everything like that moment where he almost reveals himself. Is incredible because of the way he just the way he just stands up, takes the glasses off, and you're like that's a totally different person.
7: There are two moments in the film which I think separates Reeves Superman from any superhero really um, within comic book canon, and the first one is is the kind of nod to the pimp, <laughs> which is <laughs> really. Tickled me this time round. I obviously don't remember that from a child and this this kind of huggy bear character and it just gives him a, a nod and a wink and off he goes. And the second one is just doing something as simple as rescuing a cat from a tree. You would never see Iron Man or, or, or Captain Marvel in, in a Marvel film in, in 2021. Do something as simple as that. And, and that's what separates the great characters from the yeah all right it's it's just boom smash special effects it's it's, it brings really brings that humanity to the character as well what you expect as that all american hero is doing the kind of day-to-day i'm just going to help with this traffic jam or you know something like that it's it's just real earnest simple superhero um fair
0: that night that he goes out as superman the first time and i love that again, like, okay, yeah, we saw Superman fly once, and then we're with Clark Kent, and we're with him for a while, and it takes a long time before he finally reveals himself as Superman, which just, again, I don't think that there are too many movies where you would wait that long to reveal your character as the main character type of thing, and that first night, you know, he saves Lois. I love that that saving scene. He takes care of the bank robbers. He takes care of the guy who is crawling up the side of the building trying to steal jewelry. He saves the cat in the tree, to James's point. And I'm trying to remember, is there another one as well? He saves the president.
8: He saves the Air Force That's the same night. Okay. Just fly. (laughs) Don't look. Just fly. She was supposed to fly to, that's where she was flying to in the helicopter, right? She was going to land there and and even and it's so funny, it's so great that Clark says to her like, don't you ever let up? And then he goes <laughs> Superman and does all this stuff in one night.
0: There's also a weird theme in this movie that I picked up the last time I watched it, which is parents hitting their children. Or at least, like, really, like, crushing them. Like, this whole thing of, like, Lois Lane, you didn't see a boy running around, the you know, through the tree. But this whole thing of, like, the little girl whose cat was saved. is like,
8: didn't I tell you to stop telling lies? And then you hear the smack. <laughs> For years, I had combined those two scenes. So I had thought that, I thought like they, they told Lois, stop using your imagination. And then they, and I remembered that they cut to the outside of the train and then you heard them smack her. <laughs> but then later when I watched them, like, oh, no, 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 it was the other girl who got hit. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, it's that. And it's, it's funny that you, you know, that you're bringing that up because it's one of those things. Like, here's this grand superhero movie, but that part does resonate. <laughs> like, you know, like, I do remember that. Like, yeah, she got smacked in the face because she talked about Superman. <laughs>
0: When the one cop almost gets thrown off the force because he's like, "Yeah, no, he had big red boots." Sergeant, you don't believe me. I swear, flying with a big red cape and bright red boots as well.
3: Watch the screen. Quick as a wink, he was gone.
5: Flew up in the air again. He did like a big blue bird, like a big blue bird. You don't believe me with bright red boots, flying. Why don't you take the fly night off and go back to Murphy's
7: bar and continue what you started?
5: Really. Was I'll blue be blue. off in a few minutes and I'll meet you there you myself. Blue.
0: And then you have to wonder, what would that world be? And I like this whole idea of like the immediately the newspaper man is just like, we need to be the scoop on this. And I love him throwing down all the papers and showing all the different headlines. And that scene when Superman and Lois finally have their first real encounter when she's interviewing him, it always feels like that scene was and i think it was a a scene that they're going to read when they when they screen test because it feels almost like james you and i talked about the screen test that made it into the donner cut of superman 2 where they're in um niagara falls
5: niagara
0: falls slowly i turned this feels a little bit like that because This is the most randy that we see these two characters. This whole thing of, like, how big are you and what color underwear am I wearing? It just really doesn't fit with the rest of the movie. But I love this scene so much. I love their repartee. You can just see that chemistry that Margot Kidder and Christopher Reeve have on screen. And then you don't doubt for a second that they are in love after
8: this scene happens. Watching it this time, it was also interesting to me how... Superman is very confident of himself in that scene <laughs> you know like she's into me you know? <laughs> and it works but it also felt this time at least a little jarring because it's like well that's not how I'm used to Superman being but it also makes sense because it's like the the playfulness of it the we're both tough strong people who respect each other but we're not gonna back down to each other either and it's but yeah I I, I do agree it is very much it does very much feel like the screen test, Sequence for myself for no other reason than it, like, okay, well, this is one set, (laughs) they're not really moving around a lot, (laughs) it looks like a play, you know, and, and that's fine.
0: Well, in that he flies away so easily at the end of it, I never noticed it until I was watching with the director's commentary. The whole idea of the hidden cut, he flies off. We go to Lois, but it's all one take, and then we follow her. Maybe there is a cut in there. There's a transition at some point where we follow her into the apartment, and there's a knocking at the door, and it's Clark Kent. So it's like it's one of these impossibilities where Superman can't be Clark Kent because this is all one take. Or did he move that fast that he's able to now be Clark Kent at the door that quickly after we just saw him fly away, which obviously is true. He could do that. The way that he plays Clark Kent, I absolutely love that. The scene that you are talking about with him standing up straight, you never realize how much he stoops as Clark Kent. And just that he probably is at least two inches shorter as Clark Kent than he is as Superman because of the hunch that he has, the whole thing with pushing up the glasses all the time. I was just watching... Um, Uh, Batman v. Superman again last night, God help me, and Andrea was like, uh, Henry Cavill looks exactly the same with the glasses as without, and I'm like, yeah, no, Christopher Reeve, he had the stoop, he had the stutter, he had the glasses that he's pushing up, he had his hair parted on the other side. There are times where you could believe that nobody's going to notice that he is two people, and Reeve pulls it off, because he does stand up straight, his arms
8: are out, and he just looks very, very strong when he is Superman it's two different performances. He's playing two different characters and he's playing them completely differently. Like in all the other movies, like, and again, I like Cavill as, as as Superman. And I think he could be in, you know, like he just needs to be in a, in a better movie. But so much of the time I feel like it's looked at like, well, nobody cares about Clark Kent anyway, so he shouldn't have to play. And Lois knows who he is. So he should just always be Superman. It's like, no, he's not always Superman. He is these two different people. Donner and Reeve understood that and played to that. I'm not a big fan of Kill Bill the movie,
0: but I do like the scene where out of fucking nowhere, David Carradine (laughs) starts talking about how Clark Kent views humanity or how Superman views humanity and reflects that in the being of Clark Kent.
4: A staple of the superhero mythology is there's the superhero and there's the ultra-ego. Batman is actually Bruce Wayne. Spider-Man is actually Peter Parker. When that character wakes up in the morning, he's Peter Parker. He has to put on a costume to become Spider-Man. And it is in that characteristic Superman stands alone. Superman didn't become Superman. Superman was born Superman. When Superman wakes up in the morning, he's Superman. His alter ego is Clark Kent. His outfit with the big red S. That's the blanket he was wrapped in as a baby when the Kents found him. Those are his clothes. What Kent wears, the glasses, the business suit, that's the costume. That's the costume Superman wears to blend in with us. Clark Kent is how Superman views us. And what are the characteristics of Clark Kent? He's weak. He's unsure of himself. He's a coward. Clark Kent is Superman's critique on the whole human race.
0: That was probably my favorite scene from that, and I think that it was... Probably well, knowing Tarantino is probably cribbed from someplace else. I think like Grant Morrison has written about this before. I think that there are other authors who have written about this before. But this whole idea of this is how Superman sees us is this kind of weak, sniveling creature. I don't believe that that's true, though. In this, I like I can see how you would read that into things like that. This is his interpretation of humanity, but I think this is really his way of getting the spotlight off of him is by being this very, I mean, yeah, he can type really well and he doesn't misspell things, but I think he's kind of an ineffectual human being. Like, I would be very curious to know what stories, like, even though Perry says like, I'm giving him the city beat, I would be very curious to know what Superman is writing about. Like what, what are the stories that come out of Clark Kent? Because I would imagine that they would have to be a lot, less impactful than something that a Lois Lane could write.
7: I I imagine he's the, he's the kind of writer. And and again, this all kind of comes into his upbringing as well is that he's looking for the good in humanity. He'll be looking for the good stories about the good people. And just, just contrasting between the various kind of canon supermans as well is that even the, the the Christopher Reeve Superman wants to save Luther and, and wants to make people better. We, via rehabilitation in prison. But if you fast forward now, and, and I the same, watched Batman versus Superman last night, his revenge is tinged with murder. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily, you know, I'm, I'm a good person, people can be good. That, that's the overall underlining message, is that, you know, humanity and humans as a people are flawed, inherently flawed, but this godlike being can teach them how to be better. Whereas in other films, it's like smash, crush, destroy, um laser eyes whereas yeah that, that that that's definitely the whole underlying message of, of superman the movie for me is is that, that there's good in, in humans
8: there is a good in people to me it goes back to what Jarrell says he goes they can be a great people they wish to be and it's like and you're here to help them do that and so you know and and both personalities are, are going to do that that's all what always what he's looking for is to is is to bring out the best in people. Like he, even the conversation he'll have with Lois, I can't think of the example right now where he'd be like, or, or like, like when the guy robs them, you know, and he's, he's like, now, sir, you know, the, the, the solving, you're not going to solve society's problems with a gun. <laughs> like, this is, even in that moment, he's still trying to be like, no, no, you're not a bad, you don't want to do this. This isn't who you are. That's him talking about his view of humanity. This isn't who you want to be, and this isn't who you are. I agree with you, Mike. Is that he, I, I always felt that that was Bill the character's interpretation of what Superman was, and you know, he and since he was bad, of course, he would look at it that way. <laughs> because Superman, the, the core of him to me was always he is here to, you know, he is here to protect all of humanity. Like what may, what drives him is the fact that he loves all of humanity, wants the, this is his home. He lost his other home and this is what he has now. And this is the, you know, he loves all of it and his love for Lois because she is the pinnacle of his idea of what people can be.
0: James, you brought up earlier, this whole idea of why Lex Luthor hates Superman. And I've seen that explored in different ways throughout the years. And I don't think that the, the movies, I wouldn't say that the movies really have ever captured it very well in this movie. Superman is in the way. You know, Lex Luthor has this very elaborate plan and all of a sudden this guy shows up and he's going to ruin Lex's plan or has the possibility of ruining his plans. Coming to say Superman 3, Superman 4, I would have liked to have seen some sort of better explanation for why Lex hate Superman because I think that he could probably get away with a lot of stuff without Superman ever finding out. Yeah, it's just a matter of like, this guy is in the way and I want to get him out of the way. The the scene when Superman finally confronts Lex Luthor always rings slightly wrong to me. Just in and I was reading a review, um I believe the gentleman's name is Steven DeMeo, yeah, and he was talking about um let's see, Superman ranting straight face to the villain about how warped and twisted a crook he is. uh, Talk about overkill. I can kind of see that because he does come in and he's just like, oh, you're, you're twisted mind and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, this is the first time you've met this guy. You should probably get to know him a little bit first before you start to insult him. Even though, yeah, he was going to release some cyanide poison, et cetera, et cetera. And tells him about this during that high-pitched um, message that he sends right to Superman, which I thought was great that Lex Luthor can figure out that that's the way to talk directly to Superman, is by broadcasting this signal on this high pitch.
7: Treat him like a dog. <laughs>
8: <laughs> that was one of the things, re-watching it this time though, it is it is very amusing to me that, I mean, this is already a long movie, right? And And it's funny that I can buy into it, because a lot of times I would be more critical of this, but it's like Lex Luthor knows everything about Superman in about two minutes. <laughs> like, you know, he's like, "Oh yeah, he's from Krypton. That means he's gonna. This will kill him." <laughs> and here, here's where we're gonna go get it at. <laughs> it's like, wait, wait a minute, wait, wait, Well, hold on a second.
0: Yeah, what and we skip over the Addis Ababa trip completely. Right. <laughs> Next time we see them, they're out west trying to get these missiles going.
8: Yeah. Look, we all know that the reason that Lex Luthor hate Superman is because Superman made all his hair fall out (laughs) so (laughs) from that that classic no it was there's I think it was the super friends but like when Lex Luthor loved Superman as a kid and he had this experiment that he wanted to do and he became friends with Superboy and Superboy was like "No, no no if you do this experiment it's gonna hurt you and he's like no no you're wrong and he does it it was basically like stolen from the whole Dr. Doom Reed Richards thing and so superman prevents the experiment from happening but the impact is that lex's hair all falls out and so he's like you know like you know you'll rue the day or some nonsense like that what's your name lex
5: lex luthor meeting you superboy is about the most thrilling thing that's ever happened to me and i've got quite a surprise for you follow me great scott pictures of me Dozens of Superboy trophies I've admired you for years To me, you're the greatest boy in the world I've really touched, Lex But what's all that stuff? That's my chemistry lab, Superboy I'm a farm boy now But my secret ambition is to be the world's greatest scientist Later, as young Lex Luthor embarks on a fateful experiment There, I've done it I've created a kryptonite antidote Soon Superboy will be totally indestructible No, oh, no, there's smoke coming from Lex Luthor's lab. My super breath will extinguish it. Lex, are you all right? You rat... Your super breath destroyed my lab and blew the gas fumes at me, causing my hair to fall out. But it was an accident. Don't lie. You were jealous of my genius. Now you'll never have this kryptonite antidote I invented for you. And I will use all of my scientific genius to one day destroy
8: you. My favorite interpretation of it was always from from the comic book writer uh, Mark Miller, who he used to do these comics called Superman Adventures. They were, they were based on the old cartoon show. And it was all about how Lex, when he was a little kid, was like, I'm going to be a great man. And, and it talks about his, you know, it follows his trajectory and it gets to him. And he's like, and when I, he goes, and when I'm an adult, I will be in the tallest building in all of Metropolis. And when people look up, they'll be looking at me. And the last panel is him standing there. In his in his tower, but Superman's flying overhead. Everybody is looking up at Superman, not him. That jealousy, that you know, that envy of this is the and and again, it's this. I love the Superman is all about humanity and what humanity can be, and he represents this greater than that. For Lex, is just something he can't he can't accept.
7: The thing is with the with the Lex character for me as well is I'm I'm not familiar with him in the comics. So only kind of cinema cinema uh, is that. He strikes me as a guy who can come up with the most flawless plan, absolutely super plans that Superman would never get privy to. But if the plan was to be carried out, he wouldn't know what to do next. He's like, right, I've I've reached these heights and everyone's on the knees and he doesn't quite know what to do. So he's like a master strategist, but kind of following through on his plans as well, um, which I, I think would be better seen. As Hack- with Hackman as Luther as well, is that he- all this bravado in front of Superman and all this bravado in front of the public as well? Yet yeah, he carries out his his attack, um, be it the 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 dirty bomb or the or the missiles. After that, he's he's pretty much just going to be left twiddling his thumbs, really not knowing what to do. I think that's the inherent flaw in the um, in the Luther
1: character. I'm a dog chasing cars. I wouldn't know what to do with one if I caught it. You
4: know, I just
10: do
1: things you continue to
0: figure out other evil plans or can you just kind of rest on your laurels a little bit?
4: Yeah,
8: that that There's another comic that does that too where it was like, where Superman just confronts him and it was like, you could have done a million great things, but you haven't done any of them. All you care about is me. Why are you so obsessed with me? But I do think that you're right. I think that, I do think it works in the context of this movie though in that we don't need to have like the insane obsession so to speak with superman in this movie it makes sense that luthor would be like he's in the way it's exactly what you're saying like i just need we're gonna be we're on opposite sides because i'm trying to do something he's not gonna like and i need him to not stop me from doing it
0: he is so quick to figure out kryptonite and just be like okay this is what is gonna take care of him for me also you know reading into the article oh yeah lead okay so put these things together and we're all set with this I love it. I love how quick and simple and easy it is. Second movie comes around. Okay. Yeah. He's going to align himself with Zod, Nan, and Ursa so that he can then take down the guy who defeated him before you get into the third movie, the fourth movie, et cetera. And it's just like, okay. Yeah. What, where are we going to go from here? What's that through line? It's that whole once Batman defeats the Joker, what happens kind of thing? You know, it's like they always have to be at loggerheads with one another, but. Yeah, I I appreciate what they do with Lex Luthor in this film. I also appreciate a lot the comedy that he brings to it. He's not someone that you're laughing – well, you are laughing at him sometimes, but you're laughing with him at other times. And you don't see him as being ineffectual. Like, that he actually – he pulls this plane off, which is fucking amazing. Like, he makes it all happen. The – missiles do strike he manages to just about break off California into the ocean the only thing that really stops it is Superman having to fly backwards and and turn back time otherwise Lex Luthor is really very successful
7: in this film well he's the greatest criminal mind of our time And like you say about the the comic timing and, and the lead door of Superman finally goes through and it's just one of the most natural lines delivered throughout the entire film and it's just Doors open. It's just it's such a simple line that <laughs> absolutely cracks me up. And, and and like I say, Hackman's not the person because you, you hear stories about Gene Hackman and he's he's a very kind of cantankerous dude and he doesn't suffer fools gladly. But it absolutely blows my mind he would take a role like this and, and make it one for the ages. And, and again, we, we talk about Superman, we talk about Lex Luthor and we talk about Lois Lane. Everybody thinks of Kidda, Hackman, and Reeve based on the performances from this. Like, they're, they're, they're kind of untouchable, really, when you think of it.
9: It
8: is not anybody who can come in and be this funny, but also be this threatening at the same time. And there's very few moments, there's like no moment in the movie where you really seem to feel like he's afraid of Superman.
0: Yeah. And you look at other people that have tried to be Lex Luthor over the years, and it's just like, yeah, no, I'm not buying it. I'm sorry, Kevin Spacey. I'm sorry, Jesse Eisenberg. But I'm just – in Eisenberg, the way that he is proposing things in uh, Batman v. Superman is this whole idea of you saw how these super beings destroyed Metropolis, you know, with – Zod going fucking crazy on here. He's almost a little Tony Stark-esque as far as the whole, we need to have a deterrent. You know, we need to have this... We need to have kryptonite in order to prevent Superman from going crazy. He needs to be on a leash, and we've seen this before in other you know interpretations of Superman. This whole idea of Dark Knight Returns. This whole idea of like, well, if Superman decides that he suddenly wants to enslave humanity, he's going to enslave humanity. So we need to have a deterrent against Superman, be that the Dark Knight or be that Lex Luthor. But We need to have that, as Tony Stark would say, a shield of armor around the world kind of thing to prevent people like Superman from doing this kind of stuff. But Eisenberg just isn't convincing to me. And it all feels like it goes back to child abuse stuff. Speaking of child abuse uh, from this, you know, maybe his cat was saved in a tree and his mom, you know, slapped him or his dad in this case. (laughs) But when the opportunity comes for doomsday to basically crush Lex Luthor, Superman's there to save him. So, and he doesn't see that he doesn't ever have a change of heart, but it's just like, I don't buy his motivation. I think it's all for other things that he just wants power and yeah. Okay. If you want power, you want power. That's okay. And stuff. But I, I, cannot get behind him i cannot get behind kevin spacey's real estate scheme to create a new island that looks absolutely like dog shit with that's laced with kryptonite i, I don't buy these other people but i do buy lex Luthor. i buy lex Luthor even to the point of him making solar man
8: the one superman movie i, I just can't i just can't make my way through hackman almost presents it to is <laughs> superman's a challenge for me i'm not afraid of him though you know, but he's a challenge. I, I'm I'm going to take this on just to, so everybody understands. I'm smarter than him, and that I can buy. You know, that yeah. I'm 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 definitely on board with. But yeah, this other stuff about like oh, Superman's the greatest threat to humanity. I don't. I'll never. I, I don't think I'll ever buy that because it's just not. Like, the character has been set up like that's just not. That's just not how he works. <laughs> well, you saw him when
0: he was using his laser eyes and shooting down all those people, and before he unmasked Batman and that dream sequence question mark future vision question mark i don't know what the fuck that's supposed to be in batman v superman but yeah here's evil uh superman which yeah from his upbringing and stuff we know he probably wouldn't be this guy but then again when you have that asshole kevin costner dad that he had (laughs) i guess he would be that selfish and that
7: much of a jerk after being raised by kevin costner the funniest thing about that film for me is and, and again watched the grueled my way through the Snyder films is the, uh, is, is the, the the hurricane scene where Clark loses his dad. (laughs) It's no stop. Invincible son. (laughs) Just just, let me go. Just, yeah. Yeah. I can see is, it's like, it's like a boneheaded sacrifice that
8: only Zack Snyder could possibly do. It just made me laugh so much. It's, it makes no sense t- like that is the perfect moment in the story for him to finally become his own person. Mm-hmm. To be say, You know what, I you know what, I am Superman and yeah, you've had some ideas, but I'm gonna rescue you because letting you die is stupid. While <laughs> like,
1: well, I ate my hero cake, their horses were drowning.
8: Every time it would come on TV, and you know, you cut and the the way that movie is cut together too, just like right after that flashback, and it cuts to him standing there and he goes, I let my father die because, and I always want to say, because the script made you. (laughs) Like It's like, there's no real reason that you let your dad die.
0: Whenever we were talking about that scene of Lois interviewing Superman, that I cannot watch that scene without laughing because of an SNL skit that happened years and years (laughs) ago. I think you, from that reaction, Mike, you have seen it where it was Christopher Reeve was the guest host and it was Christopher Reeve, it was Rich Hall and I want to say maybe Gary Kroger was also in there and it was, and then it was uh Jim Belushi as Donner himself and Ju- Julie Julie Louis Dreyfus uh as the secretary who was reading the lowest lines to all of these guys who are trying out for Superman. Gary Kroger just so full of himself. He looks the most like Superman. He actually he and Jeff East who played the young Superman look very similar.
11: This is where the mugger shoots Clark Kent, and he catches the bullet in his teeth. Chris, would you like to start?
3: Okay. Ready, action.
9: Careful, Clark, he has a gun.
3: Stand back, Lois, I'll protect you.
5: Broke the window.
3: <laughs> Mr. Donner? watch. I'm really sorry about that, it, it bounced off my teeth. I, I know that I can do this. Could I try again? All right, all right, all right, all right. Come on. Yeah. I'll protect you. I'll protect you. <clears throat> okay, I'm ready. Action. It's I'm two, sorry. It's two windows. Uh, Mr. Donovan, see, that one bounced off my chin. Yeah, Listen, sure. I know I can do this. Look, look. I was practicing with my roommate all day. I, I can... Ca- I caught it every time. I know I can do this. Look,
11: Chris, you're probably just a little nervous. Why don't you just sit down, okay? Sure. Okay, Peter, are you ready?
9: Action. Careful, Clark. He has a gun.
11: Stand back, Lois. I'll protect you. <laughs> Very nice work. Uh, where did you train? New York. Stellar Adler. Very good. Okay, Corey. Let's try the same lines. Have a memorized. Action.
9: Careful, Clark. He has a gun.
5: Stand back, Lois. I'll protect you. Okay, um, we've uh, narrowed it down to you two.
11: <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's go right to page 118. This is where you take the lump of coal and squeeze it into a diamond.
0: Rich Hall takes a uh, piece of coal and squeezes it and then makes a diamond out of it. Then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> when Christopher Reeve tries to do it, he just liquefies it into oil.
8: Yeah, they're like, no, no, you just, now you you liquefied it. Yeah, no, that's just not, and Belushi is so good as Donner just being more and more irritated with him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then it's the whole thing of like, okay, yeah, well, Rich Hall, you are now Superman. We're leaving, uh, you know, a week from Tuesday. It's like, oh, yeah, that's not good. I got a call back from a Dallas Ope commercial. <laughs>
8: <laughs> and it ends with them trying, practicing with, with Reeve and shooting him more in the face. He's <laughs> trying to catch the bullet.
7: Yeah, that that was so good. I was thinking after I was watching that clip that if, if there was going to be a kind of late 80s Superman reboot without Reeve and, and, and the cast that we had, I think Jim Belushi would have made a great Lex Luthor. I think he's kind of got that really smarmy... I know better than you kind of attitude to him. And I, I really, really went off Jim Belushi for quite a few years. I think it might have been Twin Peaks, The Return, that brought me back. It's like, actually, the guy's got chops. hes I never really think he got his due. And yeah, maybe maybe a Luther roll would have been just the tonic he needed. I would have liked to have seen that now that you say it. Because yeah, he does have that.
0: I am flawless. I mean, some of those roles like Red Heat, where he's just such a pompous a-hole.
8: The principal is the one that I always think of the most, where it's just like, yep, I'm here to save everybody.
0: <laughs> and we talked about this, uh James, on the Iron Sequel show that we did, which was the original ending of the film was not supposed to be this whole, I'm going to fly backwards around the, the earth and spin it backwards, which I really don't think
8: would work. I don't think that's how time works. I'm not sure. My dad was was very quick to explain that to me. Or, or I had no problem explaining that to me as a small child. You know, so I'm, I'm like seven years old <laughs> watching this movie. He's like, yeah, you couldn't make time go backwards that way. And it's just like, that's what you're going to tell me is fake in this movie?
0: <laughs> like, We're not going to talk about that moment when the Earth is completely still, that gravity would then suddenly not work anymore and everything would just come flying off the planet. But your dad gave you some good advice there, Mike.
8: But to be fair, he wasn't wrong. It, was, it <laughs> That's <laughs> it true. Was, I feel like he was also probably just thinking like like you're saying like I think that would have just destroyed everything <laughs>
7: <laughs> It didn't cut to five minutes later when there were tidal waves, earthquakes, <laughs> just like volcanoes of fire just popping up everywhere. That was the thing when it came to like even watching the Super Friends when I was young
0: there was a at one point something was headed towards the earth, and I think it was going to hit the moon or something, and and Superman just moved the moon out of the way. And I was like, that wouldn't work. That would just cause so much havoc on Earth. <laughs> what are you doing? Haven't you seen Thundar the Barbarian? Don't you know that we're in balance with the moon? Yeah. I think we see a little bit more in that TV version of, like, there were a lot of other shots. There were a lot of other things that were going on, and I think Superman was originally supposed to just, heal the earth through the uh, the fault line. I don't think Lois was supposed to die. We, Like I said, we get a little bit more of her out west in that TV version. But yeah, like we said in the Iron Sequel podcast, the original idea was that that missile that was headed towards Hackensack, where Miss Tessmacher's mom lived, he was going to push that up into space. And we see that in the Donner cut is him pushing this missile up into space and – it going out there and that's what destroys the phantom zone. So from the very beginning of the film where we saw non Ursa and Zod, now we see them again with the phantom zone breaking. And it was basically supposed to be a cliffhanger. Like see what happens next in Superman two out in probably 79 is when they probably were going to release it, but ends up being 80. So I think
8: that would have been one hell of a way to end this film. Now see, I feel like if that had been the ending, I wouldn't have been thinking about Star Wars. <laughs> you know, it would have it would have been very much like, when is that movie coming out? The sequel is set up in
0: the first five minutes of the film, you know, which is an interesting way to do it. And that when I'm reading these articles from seventy eight, seventy nine, it's like everybody knows. They're just like, Oh yeah, well this is in the next movie is gonna face off against the, the three criminals and it's like Okay. Like as a kid, I didn't know that, but they just were so open about these two movies are being shot together and this is how it's supposed to work that it was like, okay, yeah, it was not going to be a surprise to anybody that he was going to fight these three criminals. But it was to me because I just didn't put two and two together, I
7: guess. It doesn't have a cut scene in Superman the movie. Of the Phantom Zone flying through space, just as like that polite reminder is, you have all the action. <laughs> you can tell that I'm a real stick in the mud for this kind of thing, <laughs> but it, it it's it's almost like it, it it would have elevated the film from a five out of five to a six out of five potentially having that ending um, originally put in. Um, it, it it's it's kind of masterful storytelling, really, in in, in some regards. Though it does give me
0: a good soundbite when jor is just going, it is forbidden. It is forbidden. <laughs> <laughs> and they did make sure to have that in the early part of the film, which I appreciated. I think once they decided that they're going to have the Earth spinning backwards, that they covered it well enough. But yeah, it just... And then it's weird, like we were saying, watching the Donner cut when they do it a second time, and it's like, oh, okay, yeah. These two movies, he really should have done a cut of the first and the second one and made it that original vision all the way through. I think that that would have been pretty, pretty cool.
8: Coppola can stream all, you know, string all the Godfather movies together. We can do this, right? If we were to spend tens of millions of dollars to let Zack Snyder make a four-hour movie of the Justice League, can't we? We can do this. Richard Donner's still alive. <laughs> We're getting fucking director's cuts
0: of the Cotton Club now, man. We can get whatever we want. All right, guys. Let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to come back with a pair of interviews. First, you'll hear from Jeff East, who plays Teenage Clark Kent. After that, you'll hear from Ursa herself, Sarah Douglas, and we'll be back with both of those
1: right after these brief messages. Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, Common thematic elements between the songs and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So, if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts. Or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com
11: Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and I'm the host of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, a new podcast where I have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. I was scared because I thought, oh, what am I doing? Like, here I am selling my soul. But when I realized what the movie was, it's like, I'm in. Let's do, let's make this wonderful movie. The freedom of ad-libbing and letting things happen in the moment. With Stephen Trask, let's write something that involves stand-up comedy.
4: Drag, punk, rock.
7: It was so rebellious and precocious, I guess.
5: The
11: definition of gay to me is freedom.
4: Women
8: gave the show its life, I feel like. Well, it's also a bit of a
11: hunk fest. You guys are
8: right, hot true. as hell. You are too kind.
11: That was only, <laughs> that was only 15 years ago. It's a no-holds-barred talk with iconic creators and performers. It's not f- white people, it's not, I hate white people, it's dear white
3: people. It's how you start a letter. The whole climax of the show is a sex scene between Malkior and Vendla, and I remember feeling personally self-conscious about never having been with a woman in any way, (laughs) shape, or form. I'm always thinking about the audience. Make them feel, make them laugh, and make them
8: cry. I mean, that's as simple as it is for me.
0: I had been not wanting to be a part of the film. It was clear in the edit that I had to, you know, really reshape it. So the film really told me what it
9: needed to be.
11: Cinema is an empathy machine and and it sort of allows you to see yourself in people's faces that you normally wouldn't see humanity in i get emotional just talking about it and the tea is definitely spilled
8: david don't edit anything of this out (laughs) no no they don't want to hear all the charming stories they want to hear the ugly gory relationship that jim and i have (laughs) we're
11: cutting that part (laughs) out by the way and with guests like john cameron mitchell christine vachon laverne cox jonathan groff justin simeon jim fall miss coco peru rachel mason jeffrey schwartz H.P. Mendoza, and fabulous queens Shangela, Eureka, and Bob the Drag Queen. I'm sweating the house down. Oh, mama. You never
8: know what's gonna come up. You know me, I'm so big and strong that Eureka and Bob actually (laughs) hide behind me and I protect it. She is
1: quite the chihuahua, mama. She
8: does pop up. I was like,
1: wait, should we have
11: had security the whole (laughs) time? I think they think I'm the security, bitch. It's season one of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, premiering in the summer of 2020. Hope you can join us.
10: It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth... That's p a t r e o n dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's twelve dollars a year. At least fifty great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
0: I read that you were picked out of thousands of kids to be Huckleberry Finn in the 73 Tom Sawyer film.
2: I was kind of an ornery kid. And I smoked cigarettes, I drank beer, and I was also in a band. And I was not the normal run-of-the-mill teenager. I was quite the character in my neighborhood. And my mom's best friend lived next door. She was an actress, and she would witness all this stuff, what I would do. And she got a call from an agent in Kansas City who said, uh, We're looking for a real Tom Sawyer and a real Huck Finn. Do you know anybody, any kids from the local area that might fit that bill? And she goes, Oh, yeah, I know one kid. So they sent me down, and I did, I had no idea. They sat down to this audition with Robert Arena, Frank Capra Jr., and they were saying that we're doing this film in Columbia, Missouri called Tom Sawyer, and we would consider you for possible. Finn or Tom Sawyer and I'm like what they said we're going to take a picture of you so they took a picture of me and they did a poll, right? and Bobby Greenhead says, me hey, hey kid so you ever been in an acting thing I said yeah I did Snow White and Seven Dwarfs I played Sneezy he started laughing he goes well do you know how to sing and I said yeah I got a fucking band I'm the lead singer and he goes oh well, you can sing I said yeah he goes alright kid we'll get back to you and that's exactly how the interview went Next thing I know, I'm going down to Columbia, Missouri, and there's 5,000, I'm not bullshitting, 5,000 people dressed up like Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, and Becky Thatcher standing in line at the Ramada Inn in Columbia, Missouri. I swear to God, June of 19 or May of 1972, they're all standing in line, and I stood in line with them, and I'm like, this is nuts, and my mom and dad said, well, If you want to try out for this movie, go ahead. So I stood in line. We're getting ready to go to the Lake of the Ozarks. Stood in line. I said, blah, blah, blah. And I walked up to the producer. I walked up to the director. I walked up to the casting director. I said, so what do you want from me? And they said, we want you to read these lines. So I took the lines, and I said, I did the lines. And they go, well, obviously, you're not an actor. And I said, no shit, Sherlock. And they go, wait a minute. Hold on. Can you sing? I said, yeah, I got a fucking band. They go, oh, you got a band? I said, yeah, I'm the lead singer. They go, okay, we'll call you in two weeks. So two weeks go, by. I get a phone call. My mom says, uh, 20th Century Fox just called and said they want to fly out tomorrow for a screen test. I'm not sure I want to do that. I'm like, what, are you crazy? <laughs> and I go, mom... You're, are you fucking crazy? Well, your father's not in town. He's traveling right now and blah, blah, blah. I have to call your godfather. So she calls my godfather, who's the president of the Kansas City Power and Light Company. And he goes, Joanne, are you kidding me? Let that kid go. He's crazy. He Yes, let him go. You never know. He might get the part. So they fly me out to L.A. I start auditioning. I start doing my screen test. And then Jody Foster comes along with Johnny Whitaker, and we looked at each other and we start talking to each other. And they put us on film and they asked us who our name was. And I go, I'm I'm Huck Finn, Jeff East. And Johnny goes, I'm Tom Sawyer, Johnny Whitaker. And Jody goes, I'm Becky Thatcher, Jody Foster. Boom. That was it. Cut. Yep. Nineteen seventy-two. I'll never forget the look on Jodie Foster's face because she knew we got the part. She knew it. She knew it right there. And you're like, what, 15 at this time? I was 14. I was scared out of my fucking pants. I was so scared that they put me up at the Beverly Hillcrest Hotel and I get a phone call from the casting director. You got the part. I'm like, what? He goes, it's going to change your life. Get ready. And it did. Oh boy, did it. Boy, did it change my life. But I had really strong, influential from my parents. I had really good agents. I had really good managers that never let it get to my head. And I just said, okay, let's just run with this. I got offered happy days. I got offered uh, millions of dollars in this and this and that. And my parents said, nope, 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 nope. So it was cool. It was cool. So then I got under contract with Disney after doing Huckleberry Finn. Uh, the head of Disney, Roy Disney, hired me to do three films for him. And then I went on to do Superman. But it was only by coincidence that I did Superman because Dick Donner had seen me do a film called The Hazing, which is a low budget, low budget, low budget. I got paid nothing to do it, but it was a great part. And so I did it and Charlie Martin Smith was in it. So I did it because I love Charlie and all of a sudden Donner sees it because he's trying to hire an editor for Superman and Carol Littleton was the editor who was actually the editor of E.T. I don't know if you know that, but Carol Littleton was the editor of The Hazing. So she says, you got to take a look at this guy, this young guy, Jeff East. He's very interesting actor. And Donner saw me and he goes, Ooh, I got a project that's perfect for him. They'd already already talked about doing Superman at that time. So I get a call from Lynn Stallmaster. My agent got a call. I didn't get a call, but Lynn Stallmaster called my agent and said, Would Jeff come in and talk to Dick Donner about Superman? And my agent goes, Well, for what role? Jimmy Olsen? He goes, Yeah, for Jimmy Olsen. So I get into the interview and Ilya Salkine and Pierre Spangler are sitting there looking at me. They're just staring at me. And I'm like, what's going on here? I said, "I I thought I was coming in for the role of Jimmy Olsen. Don't you want me to read for you? They said, no, 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 we don't want you to read. We want you to read the script. And I go, oh, okay. So go home and read the script and come back tomorrow. Oh, okay. So I go home, I read the script, written by Mario Puzo, fantastic, 200 pages. And I go, wow, this is a fucking great project. Go back in the Lynn Stallmaster's office the next day, and there's Dick Donner, Ilyas Halkine, and Pierce Bangler. And they look at me, and they go, have you got a passport? And I go, why? And they go, do you have a passport? And I said, yeah. I said, I'm an international actor. I, I'm Huck Finn. What, what are you, kidding? They go, okay, well, you're flying to London tomorrow with us. And I'm like, what do you, for what role? You're going to play Youngs. I said, wait a minute. I'm not wearing no goddamn cape. No way. And Donner goes, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. We want you to play the real Superman. And I go, oh, the real Superman? You mean the, you mean the Clark Kent character that I read in the script? He goes, yeah, you don't have to wear a cape. You, you don't have to wear the S. I'm like, I'm in. I'm in. They fly me to fucking London. The minute I get there, they start putting these wigs on me. They start fucking with my nose and the head of makeup at Pinewood studios, the head of uh, the hair wig people, they're like, Oh, there's only two people in the entire world. I'm like, I don't really give a fuck. And they're putting these wigs on me and they're testing me with the wigs. They didn't give a shit about me as an actor. They just wanted me to look like Christopher Reeve. And I was like, wow, this is weird. So automatically, I felt weird about being there. I'd never experienced anything like that in my entire life. And they're all like, oh, yo, you've been in a lot of movies. And I'm like, yeah. I said, what are you doing to me? And I'm in my hotel room, and I look up at myself in the middle of the night. and I've got orange hair, and then I have black hair, and then I have orange hair. What are you doing? And they're putting these wigs on me, and they're putting this nose piece on me. I was like, oh, this is bizarre. But I did my job. I was a pro. I was a professional. I was trained to do my friggin' job. So then Christopher Reeve gets involved, and him and I start talking, and he's upset that I'm even doing the part because he wanted to play that part. And I'm like, Chris, Chris, wait a minute. You're too old, you're my brother's age. You can't possibly play a fifteen year old He goes, "Oh, yes, I could. I could warf myself into a fifteen year old I said Chris, jesus, calm down i will I will not disappoint you. I will perform. I will do what you want me to do just let's talk let's let's get to so we played chess together for a month, and we're in London, and it was bizarre. It was like. Weird. And Chris was constantly getting fights with Gene Hackman. He was constantly getting fights with all the other actors. And I'm like, Chris, you need to calm down, dude. You know, he goes, Well, you've been in this business longer than me. I said, Chris, calm down. Don't take it so seriously. It's a movie. And so we get into it. And I I appreciated what he had to tell me. I, I really did. And it actually helped me bring in his character, you know, because he wanted me to be him. I said, Chris, I understand you want me to be you. When you were a teenager, you were vulnerable. You, you were kind of awkward, blah, blah, blah. He says, exactly. I said, okay, Chris, that's fine. I understand. Month goes by. I go back up into Canada, go into Canada. We start shooting Donner. It's me and Donner, uh, and Glenn Ford. me. Chris is not even around. Chris is not even a part of the deal. And we're doing the scenes. They work like freaking beautiful. Just like one one take after another. Boom, 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 boom. One takes. No double takes, just one. And Donner said, wow, that's incredible. And we were on the money. Even Hackman says, god damn, that's on the money. He'd watch the dailies every night and goes, Jesus Christ, this is on the money. I said, okay. So I get back to London, and Chris is there going, "Hey, you did a great job in Canada, blah blah. Thank you very much, blah blah. You, you, you made me look good." And I'm like, "It's not, yeah, that's I made you look good. That's right. It's all about you, Chris." And they fire Richard Donner, and I go, "What?" And they fire Donner while I'm there, and I'm going, "Whoa, this is bizarre." Then it got weird, and then I started going to the set and richard lester was my director and of course i love richard lester i loved his films but i would i was a huge fan of richard lester but hey, he wasn't my director and i told him that i said hey i'm not being disrespectful but you're not dick donner sorry and so we did the scenes we got over it we got through it it's the last part of my scenes in the movie but there were none of them were directed by Donner. But it was weird. It was weird. And I said, You gotta I gotta tell you, Richard, and, and I like Richard Lester a lot. And I said, You know what? Richard Donner's never, ever, ever, ever gonna be shunned from this project. And he is my director. I am sorry that this happened. And I'm sorry that they put you in this position because you're a great director, but you're not the director of Superman. That's how I ended. I left, I left London in 1977 after that, and I didn't look back. Then, of course, Warner Brothers tried to bury my ass and didn't want me to come to the premiere. All of a sudden, the press got privy of that and started calling me, calling my managers and my agents going, what's going on with Jeff East? What's going on? Everybody wants to know. But he's in the biggest chunk of the movie, blah, blah, blah. I kept silent because it's all about Superman.
0: What, what, what were you guys working on? Was it the trip to the North Pole and the Fortress of Solitude part? Yeah,
2: yeah, the, all the Pinewood stuff, all the exterior of the Fortress of Solitude. That's all Lester. The football
0: stuff and you running against the train. I mean, that's, no, that's all darn. Dick Donner. That's yeah, darn. that's that's like
2: oh, ninety yeah. percent of your role, oh, maybe yeah.
0: ninety-five. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How did you shoot the running against the train thing?
2: Without tearing every thigh and chin muscle in my legs, they had me practice for two weeks on an airstrip, an airfield up in uh, Alberta. Me and the, all the special effects guys, we hung out for two weeks. They dragged me on the crane. We tried to figure out how to make it look real. And I finally told him, I said, Look, John, the goddamn stunt coordinator, I said, Let me touch the ground. And he goes, What do you mean? I said, I got to touch the ground. I got to actually feel the ground. He says, well, that'll break your legs. And I said, no, let me just touch the ground a little bit. And, and all the special effects guys go, okay, we'll try it, but they can't hurt me because I'm insured. I'm an, I'm an actor. I'm the star. And they're like, oh no, no, it'll hurt the actor and blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, let me touch the fucking ground. So finally, after two weeks, They figured out a way to let me touch the ground. So that's why it looks so realistic, because I'm actually touching the ground just a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. It gives me the bounce. That's why I was able to lift my leg. It's not CGI. It's a real effect. And uh, it took us two weeks to figure that out, because they've never done that stunt, ever, ever. To this day, they've never done that stunt. And I'm going, you know, guys, we're trying to figure this thing out. And I'm swaying, you know what they did with the strings, the the wires that are coming from my harness. Peter McDonald one day stepped outside. This is a true story. He took his finger and he licked his finger and he he put his finger on the lens of the camera. He says, "Oh, that'll cover up the wires," and it did. It did. Swear to God. And then the jumping in front of the train. Was all done backwards, all backwards. It's just it's a, it's a, it's an effect. It's not CGI. It's an actual real camera effect. You jump backwards. I had to learn to jump forwards, backwards.
0: So they got you on wires and what? Are they just like ripping you
2: down? Like,
0: oh, how
9: fast dude. are
2: you going? My agent was so pissed off. He was up there. They were ripping me alive. They were dragging me on the stupid wires for two weeks. I was in so much pain when I'd go home. I had shin splints. I had my thigh muscles were pulled. It was insane. They were pumping me up with drugs. I'm like, God damn. I couldn't believe how much pain I was in. In fact, if you watch the movie, the scene with Glenn Ford, when I walk from the truck to Glenn, when he says, you've been showing off for a while, I'm limping. The reason I'm limping is because I was in pain. <laughs> oh damn. True story. Yeah, there was all kinds of shit that happened. It was fun though. It was a great experience, man. It was a great experience.
0: I was watching the the film with the uh, commentary on the other day, and they said something about Richard Hackman saving you. At saved something. my
2: life. Well, when we're doing the cur, when I turn the corner and I jump in front of the train. Peter McDonald and all of them were on a a set crane. It was set. It was a crane. They went around and they see me swing out of frame, but they didn't realize I was gonna swing into the train because they actually had the camera angle so that I'm on wires. So I'm swinging on these wires and here comes this train at 45 miles an hour. And Richard Hackman goes, gee, you can't do that. And he jumps off the crane and he grabs me because I'm swinging like a fool. Boom, boom, boom. And he grabs me. He fucking saved my life. I bought him a box of Cuban cigars. I love Richard Hackman. Great guy. We flew back to Los Angeles together. And I'd known Gene for years. And, and Richard Hackman and I became really good friends from that. And daughter was like going down the Him and Salkheim were walking down the road. They're, they didn't give a shit. They got their shot.
0: How was it acting against
2: Glenn Ford? You don't act against him. He was the most gifted actor. If you knew if you knew what you were doing, he knew you knew what you were doing, and he would give to you, and that guy made you look good. That's how good he was. He's one of the best actors I ever worked with. I will say that right now. And I worked with Steyer, I worked with Brando. I worked with Harvey Corman, Paul Winfield. Glenn Ford was one of the best actors I worked with. The guy knew he had his instincts new and he would, he would fuck with you too a little bit. And then I go, you know what? You don't need to fuck with me. I'm here to do my job. And he knew that. And I loved that about him. I love that about him. I thought he was great. He hated Phyllis Thaxter though. It was really weird. He actually refused to take the limousine from the airport at Calgary to the hotel. When they both arrived, he said, "I'm not, I'm not riding in the same limousine with her." So the Salkinds had to send another limo for Glenn. And there was some weird history behind that. So when I'm working with Phyllis one day in the we're in the wheat field, we're talking to each other. I said, "What happened with Glenn?" She goes, "Oh, it's a long story." And I go. Well, why would he not allow you to drive in the same limousine? They had to get another limousine to go pick him up. She goes, oh, he hates me. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's so weird. And I don't even understand why it happened. But Glenn had some really big enemies in Hollywood. But he was one of the best actors I ever worked with. Loved working with him. Fantastic actor.
0: How did they do that kick of the football?
2: They buried a cannon, uh, in the infield. Oh, that was easy. That was easy. And, uh, then I would take a football and actually act like I'm kicking a football, which I did. I was a pretty good football player and I'd kick the football and then they spliced that in. Stuart Baird was the editor and he spliced that into this cannon would shoot this cylinder out of the ground. They buried a cannon in the ground and it would go, it would shoot. And I, And and I would get up there, and I would kick without a football, and that's how they did it.
0: I've been watching different versions of the film, and I noticed there was a little bit more of you and Lana in one version. Do you remember shooting a lot of stuff that didn't end up getting used in the film?
2: Oh, yeah. There's all kinds of stuff they didn't use. Clearing the wheat field, and there's a bunch of stuff they didn't use. There are scenes with Lana. There's uh, scenes with Glenn Ford. There are scenes with Ma Kent, all kinds of stuff. They can make a whole movie based on the stuff they cut out. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of uh, Fortress of Solitude stuff that's been cut out.
0: When do you get to see the movie for the first time?
2: 1978, Christmas of 78. And I went, I got there illegally. I went in Mark McClure's limousine. I wasn't even invited. And I went to it. Because they said, we don't want to talk about Jeff East. It's only Christopher Reeve. And I get there and everybody's surprised that I'm there. And I'm like, oh, Jeff, you're in Superman, blah, blah, blah. And I get there and I sit there and I'm so uncomfortable. And then I see the scene. I'm like, oh my God. It was weird. It's Guamans Chinese Theater in 1978. Is that when you find out that you're dubbed? You no. Know, Mark McClure is the one that called me and told me. He saw it in New York. And he saw it in Washington, D.C. He woke me up. I was in bed in my Laurel Canyon house, and he goes, Jeff, you won't believe this. But Chris dubbed your voice. I'm like, what? Yeah, they didn't even tell me. They didn't tell me. But you know what? I don't really care. My acting stands on its own. I give a shit. Christopher Reed dubbed my voice. In fact, that makes it even more interesting. Honestly, that's how I feel. And I became friends with Chris and, you know, he had his accident and I raised like $22 million for his foundation. And I'm more than happy. I don't give a shit. Big deal. I really don't care. That's not that important in life. Not that important. What's important is how the movie affected people. And that's more important to me. All the fans that have come to me all these years, And said, oh, my God, your movie really touched my heart and touched my soul and touched my life and touched my child. I'm like, yeah, that's important to me. Not that he dubbed my voice. It doesn't fucking matter.
0: What did the movie do for you and for your career? Well,
2: it got me a lot of films. I did a lot of movies. Well, I stepped into another realm of Hollywood. And, you know, any actor would love to have the chance I had. I, I did a lot of movies. I kept trying to shy away from it. So I always, always doing something different and something weird. You know, I always looked at scripts that were completely away from the uh, comic book thing. And, you know, and they, they allowed me that. It they, they was cool. I had a pretty cool career. I actually was happy with the way it turned out. And I'm still happy with it because I'm, you know, it's not just Superman that I did.
0: Definitely wasn't the first time I saw you, but I know one of the one of the first times I saw you was in Deadly Blessing.
2: Right, that was a film given to me. My agent got me that film, and uh, Wes Craven was a huge fan and uh, nice guy, really lovely guy. Loved Wes Craven and uh, great director. And he, you know, basically said, "Please do this film," and I said, "Yeah, absolutely." And then I discovered Sharon Stone. You know, she worked on that movie and I got her an agent. And the rest is history. And Susan Buckner was such a great gal to work with. I loved working with her. The whole thing was really interesting experience. Ernest Borgnine, Ernie, goddamn, what a great freaking storyteller. And Ernie just had one story after another I was like, wow. And, you know, I, I discovered that I'm in an industry that's, full of stories and people that all their past experiences and that was a gift it was fun i made a lot of money on it it paid me very well and i got to work with ernie borgnine and ernie was the coolest guy i'd ever worked with and i'd known him for years but i never worked with him he was working on poseidon adventure with gene hackman when i did tom sawyer i went and met him and we talked and you know, whatever. But then I got to work with him. He's played my dad and we got to be really close. He's such a great guy. He told me, he said, Jeff, he says, just remember this, stay off the beach, go to your audition and learn your lines. And he was right. A lot of actors get, they get rich and they get stupid and they get ridiculous. They don't, they're not disciplined. And I was always this one. I always listened to that. And I always remember what Bernie told me, what Gene Hackman told me, what all the great actors of Hollywood said, don't be an asshole, stick to your guns.
0: What have you been up to lately? Or have you even been able to be up to anything?
2: Oh, I'm up to a lot of stuff, but nobody knows about it. I have a production deal. to one of the networks. And I'm working with the guy that did Hatfield and McCoy's. Ron Parker, and he's written a, a new Western for Netflix. I will say that, Netflix. I'm not sure we're going to go with Netflix yet, but it's a Western about Tillman, Bill Tillman, the Marshall, and the Pendergast machine of Kansas City. And it's it's a new series, limited series, AR miniseries. And I'm also doing another piece, uh, something that I own, which is with Ariana Grande. And it's about the border problem that we have in the U.S. and uh, the immigration situation. And I'm producing both of them. And I actually have the financing for it. Probably the toughest part of all, right? Yes, sir. It's been, yeah, I'll tell you something. It's been a very interesting year for me. And I kind of was semi-retired. And then I got a hold of these projects and I thought, oh, this is something I'd be interested in. And then I invested in it. And then next thing I know, the network's going, hey, where'd you get this? And so I just moved on on it. In fact, one of them I co-wrote. So I was like, okay, cool. And they're all like going, well, do you want a part in this movie? And I said, not necessarily. I just want to produce it. And they're all like, well, we want you to play a part in it. And I said, okay, well, give me a role. I don't give a shit. What the hell? Just produce my movie. Yeah, it's it's been pretty interesting here. You'll see, it's going to come out.
0: Well, that's fantastic. I'm so glad that you're able to do stuff. I talked to so many people and it's like, yeah, I'm watching TV and you know, some people nope. are reading, other people are writing. At least people can do that. Not
2: me, not me, not me, not me. No way, motherfucker. No way. I am I am so busy. It's unbelievable. And I'm like, wow, this is weird. from my house. I'm in my house, in my office. And I've got, ooh, you wouldn't believe it. I I can't even tell you how busy I am. But I'm like, okay, yeah, it's been a really good year for me. And it's going to be even a better year next year. Because then you guys are going to start hearing about this stuff.
0: Mr. East, thank you so much for your time. This has been great.
2: My pleasure, sir. You take care of yourself. Be safe, all right? and have a good night.
11: Woke up this morning started to sneeze had a cigarette and a cup of tea I looked in the mirror what did I see a nine stone wheel. Sneeze and I blew my nose.
0: to know your experiences working on Superman and Superman Two.
12: It's been forty years of nonstop talk about Superman. I mean, I'm delighted that that everybody is still so fascinated by it. And, and whether or not one can actually remember things, I don't know. And I've certainly had to check a couple of times. I have to go back to, to, to. In fact, I just sent something to Jim Bowers the other day, and I said, "Can you figure this one out? You know, because it was such a complicated time." because of the different directors and the the ceasing of production and then coming back to production and then we didn't go back and then we came back and uh, it's all a bit of a blur. And in fact, I read something, just read something, uh, which actually made a little bit more sense to me because I didn't know what the hell was going on. I mean, I just did what I was told. Because you do, we filmed for however long and then Then we suddenly didn't. You know, suddenly we hadn't. We were told that we were going to cease because we were obviously, well, not obviously, but when we started it, as you know, we were doing one and two together, which we were fully aware of that we were shooting them both together. But we were really concentrating on two, and we had shot maybe three quarters of two, and somewhere along the line, somebody figured out that they'd got way too much two and they hadn't got enough of one, and we needed to cease shooting two and concentrate on one, which, of course, we'd already done our little bit because it was only the, the scene with Brando. So I, as a young actress, was delighted to be t- t- given what was called pay or play, and I was booked for the summer to come back and and didn't come back. So I got paid, and I just thought, this was this, this was all wonderful. I didn't come back then for a few months. And this is where, you know, I, I can't remember the, the timing of it. I mean, it's all sort of documented somewhere. So there was masses of stuff going on behind the scenes which I certainly wasn't aware of so when I came back I'd had you know a few months off and suddenly we had a different director but I mean who was I to say well, what's going on I mean I just accepted that we had a different director which is really the way that it was sort of portrayed to us at the time that uh, time had run out for Donna and he couldn't you know he, he he had to be doing something else so here suddenly was Richard Lester of course you know I Soon discovered from the other actors who were much more connected with Donna because they, uh, I say, because they were American, but because they were American and because they were on location in England, they spent a lot of time with Dick. They got to know him. I went home every night, so I didn't have that same sort of bond that they all had. I mean, Chris and Margot were incredibly close to Dick, and 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 were devastated when he suddenly wasn't completing two. I didn't know any differently. I just knew that he wasn't completing it. And suddenly we had this very different director, uh, which I found rather fascinating, really, because he couldn't have been more different from, from Donna. You know, Donna was like the California, my idea of a California Hollywood director with slightly too long hair and tinted, blue-tinted glasses, I always remember. And I can remember singing, it's God Almighty. And Lester was like an uptight sort of English school teacher. You know, he was, not exactly in a tie uh, and shirt, but he was he was always sort of buttoned up and shot with three cameras and a completely different approach and no nonsense. You know, Donna was much more fun and relaxed and very much you know well if you don't get it get it today we'll get it tomorrow. Whereas Lester was you know he he meant business, which actually worked quite well for me because he just told me what to do and so I did it if you know what I mean. You know, if, I, if you're given a, a bit of a, a, a leash, which I, you know, if Donna said to me, well, you know, you might find this difficult, but don't worry, we'll keep at it and blah, blah. I would go in and maybe find it difficult and maybe it would take a couple of days. But uh, Lester's approach was much more, this is what you do. You you walk up to the, you know, piece of wood, you flip your foot on it and you flip up the manhole cover and you grab the manhole cover and you throw it and you hit Superman in the stomach and, you know, and then on to the next scene. And I remember thinking, oh, bloody hell. But his approach was... Much more matter of fact, like that. For experiences for a young actress, it couldn't have been better, because I don't know that I think we might be unique, that you can probably check this out, and that to, to, to shoot something twice, as indeed we did, uh, some of the scenes, with two completely d- different directors, was a real learning curve for me, you know. It was, very, it was very good. It was a very good experience. Not that I knew it at the time, but I mean, it certainly stood me in good stead. Very different.
0: Tell me about how you got the role. Was there a lot of auditioning for it?
12: Mm-hmm. I was shooting a film called The People That Time Forgot, which was with Doug McClure and uh, Patrick Wayne, and we were away in the Canary Islands, and the only significance of it was the fact that there was no other film being shot in England at the time. It was a very lean time. There was some kind of a, I don't know whether it was a writer strike, there was some sort of a strike that had been going on, and it was a bad time for the movie industry in England. I was away and and very full of my own self-importance because, you know, I'd got a job and I was away shooting at Canary Islands. Didn't know much about the Superman buzz which was going on in England because, of course, suddenly they've got this big picture coming over to England and the prospect of work for a lot of people and also the prospect of Brando, which was great excitement to everybody. You know, it was before cell phones and social media and all of that. So I was really cut off from... You know the whole business while uh, a few weeks passed, and when I got back, uh, they, they they approached me to audition, and uh, I don't know what. I like, guess my agent called me. I don't know what, but I mean I came back from the Canary Islands to hear that I got this audition, and I was shooting every day at Pinewood Studios for the people at Time Forgot, and Superman was being shot at Shepherdon Studios, which was some few miles away. I obviously couldn't have go in the daytime because I was working, and The evenings were, you know, I I would finish my day and we would have an appointment set for me to go and meet Donna at maybe 7.30 at night or 7.00, 7.30. And I was having long days and I was pretty tired and uh, uh, there were numerous occasions. And I think I said seven or eight different times that we set up the appointment or the interview and it was canceled at, at the last minute. And I just, you know, I just got, I I just couldn't be bothered. I just was so fed up with the whole thing. And as I said, I really, you know, I didn't really appreciate the, the significance or the importance of, of the role or Superman or anything. I knew nothing about it. And I didn't even know anything about Superman because Superman was not, uh, it was not a biggie in, in, in England in the in the 70s and the way it was in America. I mean, I think people, we kind of knew who Superman was, Superman the myth. And, and the story, but it wasn't something I went to the cinema on a Saturday morning to see. When, when I was a kid, we were going to go and see, uh, Bonanza and Fury and, you know, sing thing about horses and cowboys and different things. Um, I don't remember at all sort of any of that sort of, uh, superhero stuff. Anyway, so I, um, on eighth occasion, I said I'd, I was fed up with, you know, just, it felt like they were jerking us around and, because there's a certain amount of preparation, and certainly in your head, you know, you've got a day's work, and then you've got this idea that you've got to go over in the evening, and I said I wasn't really bothered, you know, I just didn't want to do it, I said to the agent, oh, you know, pass, this is getting ridiculous, you know, and the casting agent was a very wonderful lady called Mary Selway, who, sadly, is no longer with us, but Mary Selway was one of, you know, one of the best, certainly, that England had to offer, and she called me up, and she said, really, Seth, this is absolutely up your street you must you know you must go for it of course I wasn't going to not go for it but you know there was just that little extra push so I went along and um I believe this was the eighth or ninth occasion and got to and Studios and Dick Donner kept me waiting about 20 minutes for half an hour or something and you know by then it's quarter to eight or eight o'clock at night and you know I've been working all day and, and I was in a really pissy mood and as I said this man came in with the slightly long hair and the blue tinted glasses. And I was like, really? It appears that I gave him attitude, which I'm sure that I probably did. I was just, you know, I was just a little bit terse maybe, I don't know. But whatever I did, um, I gave the impression that I was possibly the the girl for the job because that was the, the first round under my belt. He liked what he saw, which was me being mean and... Tough and not bothered and, and really totally disinterested. And I don't recall, I couldn't do a screen test because I was filming. So I, I didn't, I didn't test. I didn't, um, I didn't know that everybody and their mother was testing for it. Um, like I said, I was really very busy with this other job. I, again, I have to put it down to the fact that, you know, without social media and, and chatting on the phone to, to, to friends and getting the gossip, I was up to my neck in, uh, cardboard dinosaurs and pterodactyls and Doug McClure and the like. So I didn't know that lots of people were, were screen testing. The producers were not prepared to spend the money in the evening to lay on a crew to test me. So I didn't. I didn't screen test. What I did do was go back and go into a small office, um, again at Shepparton, where I remember Donna being there. I guess the producers were there. I don't really, I don't really recall, but I think there were like two or three people. And I remember having to sort of do some high kicks or something. I don't know what, did I actually read the lines? I don't think so, but perhaps I did. I do remember them sort of sitting up on sort of me with my long legs and everything sort of causing quite a little bit of a sensation in this small office space. And I seem to remember Donna being sort of sitting up high on a, Filing cabinet, but that again could be my vivid imagination. But I made an impression. So that was the next stage, and then the final part of it was I. This all this was all over a period of weeks, you know. Uh, well, certainly days and days and days. And the final part of it was whether or not I was going to be comfortable on um, with heights and on on the wires, because it it transpired that they'd had one or two actresses when it came to it, uh, hanging upside down, forty foot up off the ground was, you know, was just not for a lot of people. I completely embraced it. I was delighted to jump off windowsills wherever I could and and fly and soar. So when it came to the test, the flying test, the guys that I was working with on People at times got Vic Armstrong, I think it was, it was the stuntman, but they were going on to Superman at the end of my film. And so they already knew what was expected of me. And they gave me lots of pointers and tips. And you know, told me about lying. You know, when when you go home, get your kitchen stool and lie over it and practice getting what's called the kipper position, so that you know you're you're arching your back and you're doing this and doing that. So I did a little bit of you know sort of pre whatever practice to see what it might be like or what I might do. And when I got to the studio, they sort of took me up high and they all the crew were down below and the director and producers. I went and I'd put on a a, sort of a a leotard and I was—I looked terribly sort of English. I'd got my long hair tied back and I'd got my little uh, sneakers on and my black and I looked sort of, you know, I was ready for business to, to, to jump off and fly in this, I think we were on the Bond set to do the test, which was the largest sound studio at the time, certainly in the country, I think in the world possibly, but... I got up there and and off I jumped, you know, and 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 took my position as the, you know, on the wires that that I'd been shown how to do. And as I flew, it transpired that there had been an Italian actress who had got very close to getting the job. Um, She'd gone up just before me, and then I followed. And it appears that she'd come and she was all clad in furs and very much the movie star. And then I came along like little Miss sort of po-faced English girl and jumped off in my leotard and. One of the crew looked up at me and shouted, Ear darling, you've got no chance. The last bird flew without any knickers on. And it transpired that the girl had got up and gone up, so the story has it, and flown without any underwear on. Now, whether that's true, I do not know. But I can tell you, I certainly was wearing mine. So there you go.
0: What did you think of your outfit?
12: I mean, it was organza, it wasn't leather, and having been, lived with the variety tagline of, uh, uh, leather-clad dominatrix for, for most of my life, it wasn't leather, it was, it was organza, Um the, it was trimmed with a sort of, when I say a black PVC or black plastic, it was, it was actually a sort of dark red, and sometimes in pictures you can see the red reflected, I mean, it's quite wonderful. They hadn't considered the fact that I had to wear a harness underneath for the for the clips, you know, for the for the wires. And of course, they had given they'd, they'd put those slits up the side, right up to the top of my thigh on the costume, which of course meant that a harness would have been seen. So they had to design a very, very, very tiny. Instead of changing the costume, they changed the harness. So I wore a very slight, almost like a garter belt sort of, a, you know, a, a little harness thing. I mean, really minuscule thing uh, that just had two hooks on either side of my hips whereas the original sort of peter pan flying harness was a, was a big sort of corsety thing with a wire in the back of your you know the, your main uh, the center of your back and two hooks on the side and you were very secure we were we were just you know a couple of wires on a on a little harness and, uh, and that, and that was that. To actually fly, you were, it was all your own support, you know, so you would hang over just for relaxation, right over, but to, to hold yourself, you were holding your own back, you know, it was very, very, very uncomfortable. I loved, I mean, I loved the boots, I loved the look, but I mean, it took, it, you know, every time I got everything on and I wanted to go to the bathroom and then of course you couldn't get out of it and, or you're on the end of the world. I mean, all of those sort of stupid things like that. Certainly, when I got I got bronchitis and I got a you know streaming cold, and you're hanging upside down. There's nowhere to keep a tissue. I mean, these are just you know sort of stupid things that that actually aren't so stupid when you're hanging there on you know on a daily on a daily basis.
0: I don't think there's a scene that you're in where Terence Stamp and Jack O'Halloran aren't. How was it working with them?
12: It was the best. I mean, I was totally in love with Terence Stamp uh, as a young young girl. I absolutely had idolized him, grown up watching him and far from the madding crowd and blue was it. I mean, I just, he was, he was, you know, in the sixties, I was only, you know, a young teenager, but he was already a big star. And we, we, all of us were just, he was our most gorgeous, handsome, fabulous looking man in the whole wide world. And he had disappeared off our screens and gone off to India. And none of us had heard from him in something like seven years. And he came back having gone away and there was great stories about how his uh, great love affair had ended and he'd gone off to India to, to find himself and it took him quite some time. So when I met him, as I said, I had a terrific teenage crush on him. And when I met him, I mean, he was just, he's an incredibly, well, I guess after seven or eight years in India, I mean, he was very focused and, and centered and, and spiritual and I was always quite fascinated because he had, you know, he wore a lot of orange and he had sort of beads around his neck and I'd never quite met anybody quite like him. But he was wonderful. I had a wicked sense of humor and, and was an absolute delight and a joy and had been had been out of the business, not working for years and had come back to do two things. One being a film called Meetings with a Remarkable Man, which um he shot Peter Brooks, um which was a big, big, big sort of party movie. And the other one, I guess was the money, was the money and of him, was, was Superman. But he hadn't been around, so he was very quiet, and I mean, he, he sort of meditated and drank mint tea, and I was just completely fascinated with him. And then on the other hand, I had old Mr., Mr. O'Halloran, with his tales of Mafiosa things, and, and fabulous stories, and, and Jack and I speak all the time, and you know, and are still very, you know, very close, and he always looked out for me, but I mean, he didn't, he didn't mess with Jack, you know. And i I had never met anybody like him I mean it was complete extreme and he was a real you know it was he was quite I think possibly for a lot of people quite intimidating you know and his his background was his father who's anastasia uh, you know who I knew a little bit about Matthias stories and was always quite I found it absolutely fascinating you know his background and his kind of people he seemed to be mixing with It was just for a little English rose like me, it was just all too much. Between Terry and him, I was just a rose between two thorns, I think it's fair to say. But he was wonderful. I mean, they were great. and They took very good care of me. And no, we did everything together. We did everything together. So, And, you know, and continue to have the, the friendship, which is lovely, because it was years and years and years of, and well, it, months and months and months, I should say, of Superman. And, and then, consequently, here we are sort of all these years later still. I think I'm going to, I'm supposed to be going to knoxville tennessee i think in october uh, the convention's uh, you know have been cancelled a couple of times and whether they, this one is, still seems to be on in october but who knows uh the other two have been pushed off till next year but you know that will be another occasion that i'll be with jack which is great we, You know we have we've always had fun on the circuit because of course originally you know it'd be margot would be with us and we'd all go off together terry i'm sure it's his idea of hell and and he wouldn't uh there's no way there's no way I, he did the one in London, and he was in complete shock from that. But we we enjoy Jack and I enjoy, because when I'm in LA, am you know I see a lot of Jack, and uh, we know we speak, and and it's it's good. But he had a whole different, you know, a whole different experience on Superman um, from me, because he, like I said, the the difference is when you're on location is that you are firstly you're getting a a good podium, secondly they're putting you in a nice hotel or a nice apartment, and Everybody hangs out together because you're with a cast of mutual friends who have come from another country, if you like. I went home. So most nights, I missed out on all the, probably a good job, all the partying and the this and the that and the, you know, that stuff. Because I went home. I'd got the supper for my old man, you know. It's that sort of mundane sort of stuff. You know, anyway.
0: There's the scene in the second film that takes place in uh, Texas town. Where did you actually shoot that at?
12: It's called... Chobham, C H O B A M, I think it is Chobham Common. Um, it's it's a little ways outside of London. I'm not even quite sure where it is anymore, Chobham Common. But it's it's a little ways outside of London. That was all reconstructed. I mean, every everything was, as you know, everything was in England. Obviously, Niagara Falls wasn't in England, but I mean, everything we did was was in England. That particular place. It's well, funny. I was just talking about my my mum uh, to somebody yesterday, uh, reminding them of mum coming to. Uh, visit the set with my sister and my sister's three kids. And and it was the scene where I was blowing the helicopter out of the sky. And um, so we were out there in the middle of wherever the hell we were. And my mother, it, it appears, had decided rather than come around the front, she would park over the back over a, on a field so not to disturb me. And she could see my trailer in the distance. So she and my sister and the sister's kids, you know, all came over with their picnic baskets over the back of the field and just, just as the helicopter was taking off and I can remember the COD Who the bloody hell sat And there was my mum coming over the backfield, you know, right in the middle of this enormous setup that uh bless her. Anyway the Trouble is I can't remember who anybody is anymore. I don't know whether that was Donna or Lester. I suppose it was I don't know. I don't know. It's all such a blur, you know. You you have to talk to the to the Superman sort of fanatics who absolutely absolutely can tell you which was which, you know, what was what. But not me, I I just can't remember.
0: I had read that you are dubbed by another actress in parts. Is
9: that true?
12: There is some truth in that, yeah. But I'm not actually going to discuss that, because it's all in the memoir I'm doing about that. My main thing which got me through was that it, you know, it was more about the my presence thank god than the vocal but yes that that there is definitely some truth in that but it is something there's a story behind it so i'm sorry i'm I'm not i'm i'm not going to share the story with you but i am going to tell you that you're the only second person that has ever in 40 years asked me so well done you a million and one journalists. you know how many of that i mean i'm serious i I, i'm serious and it's only it only happened first time last year and uh, now you're the second one so there you go So it just shows that people are, you know, does anybody really care anymore? No. But uh, yes, there is a story there, and I will be telling it, well, a small part of the story.
0: When they released the Donner Cut in 2006, did you get called back in to do anything, speaking of voiceover and that kind of work?
12: No, nothing at all. He put that all together uh, with, with what he had got, with the footage. I mean, I was absolutely staggered that he'd got that much footage that he was able to do that. I mean, there's one or two cobbledy bits, which everybody says, Which, I mean, he still did a, he did a pretty good job of making a a, a complete picture out of it. But no, we weren't, we knew nothing about it. Nor did we make any money from it, nor did we, you know, or anything, considering it's another movie. It says very clearly in one's contract, you know, that there are, it's only, there is only two, and Warner Brothers bring another version out, which would really and truly be three. So none of us. Well, I say none of us. I certainly didn't. And my understanding is the other actors, because we tried to challenge Warner Brothers, and you know it's not an easy job to challenge big companies who have lawyers and the like. So there you are, yet another non-money-making project. <laughs> but, but I mean, extraordinary that he had. No wonder he was ticked off. I mean, if you had that much, that much stuff, it just shows, doesn't it? Really. And, and again, I, I'm, I, you know, I don't spend my life watching Superman. There are people that seem to spend their life watching Superman, and it is absolutely fascinating to me, and, and luckily I'm not overly bothered by it, but I'm fascinated by the fact that there are people that can tell you, blow by blow by blow, which scenes were shot by this, and which scenes were shot by that, and how this is different from that, and you know, in in Donna's version, you know, is it Donna's version where the bullet is shot, or is that in Lester's version and and the Superman catches the bullet? I mean, I I don't know, I don't know. But there's a, there's an awful lot an awful lot of um uh, uh, fans out there that just love all that stuff. You know, and I suppose it's exciting, isn't it, just to be able to watch and to glean and to see. I mean, what I do know is that you can see that Margot Kidder. Her, her Her face was much thinner, or rather she'd got more cheekbones now i i never i do not know this for a fact, but my understanding was that after she'd completed filming with Donna, she had some work done on her teeth and uh which meant that she had some back teeth out or something like that, which meant that she had more of a gave her more cheekbones she didn't have the work done because of that but it was the teeth you know she has a different, slightly different shaped face i mean there's definitely fascinating differences between i mean my wig i have a you know i wear a wig my my little fringe does all sorts of weird things from depending on whether it was in the beginning or in the end or which director and so i guess the fans you know it's something for the for the super fans to, to spot and delight in which indeed they do and they, t- they ask you all the time about it and get very disappointed when you don't know the answer.
0: You know, I never realized that you were wearing a wig. I thought that was a haircut.
12: No, no, sure. I had very long hair. I didn't have very long hair, but I, my hair was down to my to my chest. I mean, I, it was the day before. I finished People at Time Forgot on, the on. I think it was like the Wednesday, and I I went straight to Superman on the Thursday. And, and I went from people uh, where I was wearing, a, I had my hair in before, before the Star Wars sort of um, uh, look with the, the 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 ear the you know the the those what do they call ear b- buns? Where, where the hair hair buns you know at the side that Carrie Fisher had? I I was sort of wearing that then, and I had at the end of the film I let my hair down, and it was you know it was a good chest level. Uh, no, it was a pin curls every day, every day put under. Nobody said get your hair cut. That's wonderful. Nobody ever I never nobody ever said it, so I never did. So I went through that every morning. So it's no wonder I was mean and pissed and fed up by the time it got to to shooting, because it was hours of stuff, you
0: know. Well, you mentioned your memoir. I'm very curious about that.
12: Yeah, it's been going, it's been, uh, I'm working with somebody, and it's because this has gone on for years now, people keep saying, do it. And uh, I've had a couple of uh, approaches um, in the past, but they wanted much more of Kiss and Tell, of which God knows I've got the stories but that's, that's just not my remit, you know, I, I'm not, it's not, it's a difficult one. Uh, and also there's stuff, I, I always said that, uh, you know, you've got to be, if you're going to do that sort of thing, you've got to be quite honest, and so, I'd always said I'd wait till my mother died before, because I'd, I said I'd kill her if, if, I actually wrote something, uh, poor darling, um, because she thinks I am so, so, as pure as the driven snow. Anyway, bless her, she died, she died in September, so, um, but she was 99, so, uh, so, you know, I, I, then we started pulling out all the notes. I reckon that by the time I'm 70, um, I, it won't really matter what the hell I say. But so that's 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 where we're aiming for because we're all getting old now. But yes, and a lot of it has to do with the Superman years and the effect of uh, uh, the influence that Superman had or, or that life with carrying that whole Superman sort of mantle, which it does, because it does not precede you. And like I said, 40 years later, I'm still bloody talking about it, you know. I mean, it's... Ridiculous, really. But, I mean, I'm not knocking it, but it is ridiculous. Because I've told the stories over and over again. So, yes, yeah, so that's going on. So we'll see. We'll see. It'll, it'll happen. It's a question of timing and everything. So that's all I'm saying on the subject, because I'm not
0: talking about it. You talked about conventions. I'm sure you have a lot of people that have you sign things for Superman, a lot of people that have you talk about Conan the Destroyer. Probably V. What is the most unusual thing that people are just like? Oh, I loved you in this.
12: It's not so much the unusual. It's just it's just the constant reminder that the films that you do that you think nobody'll ever see. Um, there's an awful lot of people that sit up at four a.m. watching things like you know, uh, re- Night of Return of the Night of the Living Dead or whatever the hell it's called. And it's the weird, offbeat little horror things that you did because you needed to pay a mortgage or do something and you think nobody will ever see it and of course there are always people puppet master three i mean for goodness sake but i'm delighted because quite honestly you know I, it's nice to know that there are still people that will come clutching copies of some something i'd even forgotten i was in <laughs> so it's refreshing rather than the obvious conan and, and beastmaster but really and truly this is the same genre it's sort of sort of i haven't I haven't really done that much horror. I mean, I've done two, maybe two or three, but I'm much more on the sci-fi fantasy thing. So you know, people will pull things out of—I mean, extraordinary—and and, and also they have kept things. That's what sort of, I find amazing. I mean, for years and years and years, they've got some sort of grubby copy of 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 uh, you know. Somebody came to me the other day with uh, some—was uh, it Rollerball or something—which I wasn't even in. I mean, I did—I was in an extra in the background, but you know, it was the credit there. Um, But, you know, they have these people have things and they pull them out, you know, continually. And I think, oh, my God. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm always very happy when people bring the unusual. I know that uh uh, swamp swamp thing is is very popular, which I never thought it would be. But, yes, it has an audience. And um, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm I'm very happy that people are fans. I'm just slightly amazed at how many people watch these films you really don't think of worth the time of day and and they watch it and they love them. So who am I? Who am I to criticize? No, no. Anything else? Sir?
0: This was great. Thank you so much.
12: I'm delighted to speak to you again. I hope that you can make something of it. It's always a pleasure and, and hopefully we know we'll, I'll get back there sometime. Well, I will. I'm desperate to get. I just don't want to come until I've had my second uh, vaccine, you know, I, I, I've, I've really got to get back, so back to LA anyway. And, and also, you know, I, even though I complain about the conventions a little bit, I mean, I, I only do about two or three a year, but I do the big ones. I do really, I've, I've realized I kind of miss them. You know, that whole network of people that really depend on them for their community. You know, there's lots of, because a lot of my fans are, you know, kind of individual people and they probably perhaps don't mix so much and, or they have, you know, particular tastes, which I know is something that they, you know, they meet other like-minded souls at the conventions and I think it's a sort of very healthy way for them to sort of get together and, and not having it must be very, very tough, so. Um, I'm always, you know, pleased to stop and talk and chat and do, and and I shall just, uh, if you ever come somewhere and I'm complaining about sitting and talking about Superman, remind me that I've said that I'm very pleased to do it, will you? Because there's a good chance I'll have forgotten it, you know. When when the n hundredth time somebody says, "And how did you fly?" and "What was Christopher Reeve really like?" and you go, "Oh God, help me." Anyway, luckily you didn't ask me either of those questions, so you can come again. Okay. Thank
0: you very much. I appreciate it.
12: All right, my dear. You take care. You send me an email if there's anything else you need to know, okay?
0: Superman is a hit,
6: say the super critics. Newsweek says Christopher Reeve's entire performance is a delight.
3: Can I take you to
1: the airport? Not unless you can fly.
6: Judith Crist says Margot Kidder is a delightful Lois Lane. The
1: problem with Men of Steel, there's never one around when you want
6: one. And Time Magazine calls it a film that's fun for everyone. Superman. The movie rated PG guidance suggested.
0: All right, we are back, and we are talking about Superman. And yeah, well, let's say again. So James and I, we talked for what, like two and a half hours on the Iron Sequel podcast, talking about Superman
7: 2? That was a great time. The podcast itself kind of came from over in the UK. Uh, well the same with everywhere we, we we were hit with a lockdown and the, the, I wanted to try and figure out what I wanted to do with my time and it was a case of well I have all this film knowledge and a majority of my favorite films are sequels why not do a podcast on sequels because there's nothing really out there in terms of the, 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 the podcast I did find regarding sequels were like Transformers 8 and things like that whereas I want to talk about Predator 2 and Death Wish 3 and the premise was really to just reach out to friends and, and people I admire from podcasts such as such as yourself, Mike, and and various labels and there's been a few hits and a few misses um, and it, it's worked out to be really well. I mean, I... I sp- told Mike that I was quite nervous about having Mike on with my, myself having listened to the projection booth for so long, but it was just such an easygoing chat. And we were on the same page from the first kind of chat we had. Um And it was great to talk Superman Two because again, this was a film from my childhood and I know Mike, you were kind of flipping between Superman two and the color of money. And I'm really, really glad you picked Superman two because it kind of opened a door to revisit all these films from my childhood that I probably would have never have done so without your guidance. Yeah, and that is another one where it's just like so
0: many different versions of it. It's just amazing that if we can get uh, the five-hour version of Apocalypse Now, why can't we get the five-hour version of Superman and just get this whole story told the way that it was originally envisioned? I imagine that most of it is out there. I'm very curious if we can get a three-hour version of Superman the movie because it's, what, 45 minutes that is added to it? That's the runtime of, of you know some of these pre-code movies that I've been talking about with Chris Dashu lately. <laughs> so this is almost a full other film that they added back to the film. Who
7: knows what else is out there that we haven't even seen? I mean, when it comes to runtimes as well, I, I'm very much a person that when it gets to a certain time at night, I'll look at the runtime of a film and I'm oh no, not tonight. Can I just have 80 minutes, please? But with with Superman, even clocking in the version I watched was two hours, 25 minutes, it was an absolute breeze, like I can get through that if the, if the if the material is good and well told, I could watch a six hour film it doesn 't really bother me. It's, and it 's it's all, it's all about the source material and it, whether it 's in safe hands or not um, and that for me is one of the the, the the biggest things when it comes to kind of epic films. Donna wanted to create an epic teaching people with, and, and treating the source material with respect, which I think he did. And, and that was that's one of his strengths is, is just letting a story flow. Um, I'm a big fan of Donna for, from his work from the Goonies at Scrooge through to Lethal Weapon. And I think this is pretty much the jewel in the crown for him.
8: In the director's cut, it does not feel like there is a – there's not a wasted moment in this. There's not an unnecessary moment in this mm. in this story, right? <laughs> Watching the TV cut, there were moments like, okay, I'm glad they cut this out because Otis's journey – through the city into the, into Lex's lair takes almost as long as as Kalel's journey from Krypton to Earth. <laughs> you know, it is. I was just like, man, we are really spending a lot of time in this subway station. <laughs> but again, it just it speaks to Donner. Like it's one of those things. Like I'm going to shoot every single thing I think I need, and then I'm going to put it together so that it is everything it needs to be.
0: Yeah, he definitely. Had a vision, which is pretty remarkable, and I think like that partnership that he had with Tom Mankiewicz was just an incredible boon to him that he was able to have this writer that he really could speak to and understand. And it sounds like Mankiewicz was just writing constantly and like had the the guts there, had the skeleton where for, for everything to fit, but then was just like, "Hey, I need this type of scene," and then Mankiewicz would write it. And so it's remarkable that they were able to to put this together that this is, yeah, this is a a huge Epic film, but it sounds like it was really made in a very scrappy way other than the special effects, which they had to think out so much. I mean, we haven't really talked about the flying effects, which that was how this movie was sold. You know, the posters were like the Superman symbol and the line, you will believe a man can fly. And, they fucking made it very believable. And they were trying all of these different technologies They were doing front projection, rear projection, blue screen, all this kind of stuff in order to make it look like it was a real thing. And they would use different things at different times for different shots. And then I do like how they kept going back to, christopher Reeve selling it and this idea of him looking the way that he was going to fly moving his arms in the right way for these different ways that he was going to fly and that without reeves performance it would just look like a guy probably laying on a table and you know with with clouds
7: and birds flying by or something there was a good story from when because the Kidder was was lamenting the fact that they had to wear these harnesses that kind of go up to regions we, we shan't talk about, um, making it very uncomfortable. But there was apparently one issue on set where some scaffolding um, came apart, and Reeve not breaking character actually caught the scaffolding in, in in his hand while still doing the while still doing the flying with with Lois Lane and it was like after after the fact she says to him she's like did you know what you just did then? And he's like he didn't break character once <laughs> apparently throughout the film which was just like absolutely sensational to to hear something like that and it just yeah it just it just gives him that extra bit more oh, god we miss this Superman.
8: Donner talks about that. So they both talk about that so much in the commentary and, and in the and in the documentaries too. And it's so true. You believe it because Reeve clearly believed it, right? Like he believed he was everything he's doing, all that stuff. It's just like, yeah, that's he's flying. There's no reason for me to, of course, I believe he's flying. It's really
0: funny. I did an episode way back in 2012, just about uh, this time in 2012, talking about a fan film called Sup- Superb Man, the other movie. And it was to Superman and Superman 2 what Closet Cases of the Nerd Kind was to Close Encounters or Hardware Wars was to Star Wars. They did it so well. They had like little cameos in there. The guy that played, um, oh, what was his name from, um, Mr. Kimball from Green Ape. Acres. He was, uh, in there and they had, you know, like I was talking about how people knew that non Ursa and, and Zod were going to have to come back. They actually had General Zod in this going against Superman and they had a, uh, had a really horrendous it was like a yellow faced performance of lex Luthor, but then he reveals that he's actually the white guy <laughs> anyway it was really kind of strange Jeez. but they put they put this out back in the early 80s uh 1981 it came out and i need to check in with the filmmakers because i spoke with them all these years ago and they're like yeah 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 we're gonna be putting it out in dvd and we've got extras like they had a making of that was longer than the, the short itself and it was Great. I loved watching this stuff, but I don't think it's ever really properly come out. And I was just like poised for, okay, great. This movie's finally going to be out there. Because for years, I just read about it and never could actually see it until I contacted the filmmakers. We know that something is great when it has great parodies, and this was one of those really, really good parodies. And, of course, as we're talking about Superman, the movie, I'm thinking of all the times like Mad Magazine would do parodies of stuff as well. And especially, you know, like they had basically like the Colonel Kurtz-type character of Marlon Brando as jor so like. Marlon Brando is not very heavy in this film, but of course, no way Mad Magazine portrayed him, he had to look like he was like 500 pounds. <laughs> so I, I always appreciate good parodies of stuff, and I'm sure that they have parodied – well, I think Bizarro is kind of a parody of Superman in a lot of ways, and I've read some really good Bizarro
8: comics over the years. I always think about Mad Magazine and Superman because, <laughs> as a kid, I loved Superman too so much. That I was, I, I, I was ready to not forgive Mad Magazine if they parodied it. <laughs> like, I was like, I was like, no, no, you, you need. To, you know, I loved it so much. I was like, I understand parody to a certain extent, but it was like, no, no, you have to be respectful of this movie. And then they did it, and I was heartbroken, <laughs> even though their parody was great.
7: It's almost like an American institution. Mad Magazine and Superman going together is. <laughs> He, he opened, Like I say, it opened up the door for me personally because I really don't think I'd actually watched Superman since I was you know, quite a young child, even though it, it, all the memories came flooding back and obviously the, the multiple cuts of Superman 2. And I just thought, why not? Let, let's just jump in with two feet and did Superman 3. Didn't get to Quest for Peace, but Quest for Peace was the first Superman film I saw at the cinema and the kind of birth of Nuclear Man, terrified me, like absolutely terrified me and caused nightmares for years on end. So yeah, it really, it really got to me. And I I was, I was, it was almost when I was, when I was a child, I used to look for things that I know would scare me and then instantly regret it when I was having sleepless nights, but there was just something about it that didn't sit with me. It could have gone either way based on which nuclear man they decided to go with, it could have been either comical or terrifying. Yeah, I decided to give the Zack Snyder ones a go as well, um, of which I'd only seen Man of Steel before, and I, I saw it at the cinema IMAX 3D, the whole shebang with my wife and it was migraine-inducing, to to say the least. There there was a point where we just had to take the glasses off and go, I I can't do this, it's it's too much. The, the, The Snyder Man of Steel, to me, isn't what Superman is. It's not what I always grew up knowing. And I blame the Dark Knight for this. I think a lot of modern superhero films owe a lot to what the Dark Knight did in shaping people's perception of having this this otherworldly character in the real world. It's not like we talked about before of coming straight from the comic book pages and there was one point in particular when I was just like, no, this isn't Superman for me and it was when Zod throws a tanker at Superman and he steps out of the way and it, it goes into a building full of people and that to me is not Superman. That's not his M.O. And it really was smash bang wallop. This is a superhero film and I got through it and the next logical step was Batman versus Superman, which I've not seen at all. And it was just, again, almost a vehicle for setting up Wonder Woman with some fighty smash things going on. It was overly dark it was origin story again. You know the Batman origin story. You know the Superman origin story. And it was just drilling it into you again in like a three hour plus runtime. But that being said, I actually didn't mind Batman versus Superman more than I thought I would. I like Cavill as Superman and I surprisingly really like Affleck as Batman. I think it's, he it brings that kind of bozo charm that Affleck has to the role. It was, it was a saturday night film you know i I wasn't looking for anything that was going to change the world it was it was you know a real like a popcorn film really for me so um and i I really didn't bother with superman returns i think i'm going to leave that one as it is because you kind of gave an exhausted um expression when you were talking about superman returns mike
8: it's a good choice it's a good choice to just let it lie like i said that was why i revisited this movie all those years ago because i was so excited you know you know, I'd, I'd seen the presentation at, at, at Comic-Con. You know, this was these these guys were going to make the sequel to this movie that we didn't have and blah, 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 blah. And then you see it and you're just like, I don't know what this movie is supposed to be. And it doesn't know what it's supposed to be either. And then later to read that one of the big sequences in the movie, you know, one of the big action sequences was actually added in later. It's just it's a it's just a very frustrating experience.
0: Well, that that whole opening of his return to Krypton was cut, even though I still don't know why he returned to Qui- Krypton, because it's like,
8: well, you know, the planet's destroyed. That's one of the things, actually, going back to the 78 version, where, where like, there was some indication that the that there, there might still be life on the planet, or I guess is why he went, or there might have been survivors. But then there's that whole part that it, where where Jor-El is saying to him you know when when he becomes Superman he goes by this time many millions of years will have passed on your world and it's like wait wait a second <laughs> if that's the case then there's literally nothing to go back to
0: <laughs> yeah yeah no which, which makes sense I mean it's that whole interstellar thing, where, you know, time passes this way on this planet, passes this way on this other one. You know, I'd like that that's one of the few mistakes that jor ever makes, is when he says, you know, your 28-hour day, and it's like, nope, 24, okay. I wouldn't have corrected him if my old man said that, but, you know,
8: whatever. Well, it wasn't Glenn Ford talking, you know, it it'd been Glenn Ford, he would have said, oh, I'll just let it go. I'm, one, I'm the only person in my household who feels this way, but I do feel strongly about it. I think Ben Affleck was actually great as Bruce Wayne and Batman mm. in, in that movie. And again, I, I, it's the same. It's the same thing with him and with Cavill. I, I want them to have better movies where they can be these people, and they haven't had that yet. I don't know if they will, but it would be nice if they could at least both have one. You know, because I think they, I think both of them get kind of a bad rap. Unfairly, because it's like, yeah, the movies they're in are terrible, and as good as they are, you they can't elevate them they can't elevate the movie solely by themselves.
0: no i I was just saying that earlier today. I was like, I wish Ben Affleck and uh Jeremy Irons had their own Batman and Alfred type movie. I liked the parts that he was in until he decided that he needed to destroy Superman for whatever
8: reason. I still don't know what that reason is. It's the same nonsensical reason of he's going to turn bad and kill us all. Like, oh, okay. Well, does that mean you should also kill yourself? Because maybe you'll turn bad and kill us mm-hmm. all too.
0: I mean, is it because of his dream? He seems to be mad at Superman even before he has that
8: dream. It just doesn't work. Like many of us, you know, he read The Dark Knight Returns. And he's like, that scene where you know Batman and Superman beat each other up is so cool. And it's like, you need to understand it took like 40 to 50 years of comic book lore to get to that point. You're going to try to rush there in two and a half hours. Don't do that. <laughs> you, well, you don't that, get to do that.
7: You raise uh, the, the the very next point I was going to talk about. And, and obviously superhero films are quite a, a big part of the kind of online discussion and, and film discourse at the minute. And it, it gets bizarrely toxic as well. Um, I, I, I didn't grow up. Reading comic books, um, and, and I've given time to the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe over the past year, as, as me and Mike discussed as well, but one of the things that really seems to wind people up when it comes to Marvel is is that you need to watch... Four to five films before the big event film, whereas what DC tries to do is just have the event film and squeeze everything in you can possibly do. You've got we've got three hours. Like what can we do? It's like right, we're going to have a fight. We're going to introduce a monster. We're going to introduce another monster. Whereas it, it doesn't give. It's almost if like they suffocate the film to the point of not allowing the plot to flow. Um, with with the character of Doomsday in Batman versus is Superman is is it was just fifteen minutes, if that of of this like. Earth threatening being who was creating all manner of carnage left, right, and center. And it was done with quick as that. Whereas if you go to Infinity War and Endgame, this is a villain who's been set up over the course of 10 years or so, maybe, is it, uh, along there? And they give him seven hours screen time or seven hours of, of film to get this point across. And, you know, whether you love it or hate it, that is a much better way to tell a story than it is to just cram it all into three, three and a half hours.
8: But there's not enough time to care about anything. There's no room to invest, it's just like like you're saying it's 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 fifteen minutes <laughs> like like he's the greatest threat ever, oh I guess he's done like that's you know mm-hmm. that's it like i don't i don't how how do i I don't even have the room to care about
0: him. He seems to get more powerful the more we hit him, so let's hit him some more
7: and and the character of Luther as well is is turning him ultra dark and could you ever imagine? Hackman's Luther taking a knife to his hand and cutting his hand open—it it, it just these kind of decisions that these characters make that you've you've known and loved for for twenty plus years—and it's just right. They're going to be, they've got to be a troubled, b tortured, c um, have have flashbacks to a past. And it's come on, dude. You, this this has been done to death now. It's and and you know we've got this four hour cut of Justice League coming up, which I'm um, I, I I don't know. I, I saw Justice League at the cinema when I, I literally had. A few hours to spare and it was the only thing on so I just kind of went in and watched it and bizarrely enough it wasn't the f- worst film I watched that year but I, d- I had no idea what was going on for the majority of the film it-, it was just character character smash 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 ending and now it's like well what we really needed was an extra hour and a half tagged on that and it's like oh dude really <laughs> this is going to be absolutely exhausting but
8: don't worry this was this was only part one of three and so there Ooh. were supposed to be like eight more hours which, of course, aren't, which, that's just me speculating that it would be eight more. I was probably closer to ten. And, and that's the, you know, it's funny. That's my big, my, my expectation is that this is going to come out. People are going to watch it. And then all those release the Snyder Cut, uh, you know, uh, uh, people are going to be like, okay, well, now we need to protest so that they'll make part two and three. <laughs> this, there's no way this is going to live up to the expectation because the no movie could. <laughs> and, and, but, but if we had all three of them, Then we would finally have the masterpiece we know exists that does not exist.
0: Yeah, we are definitely recording this before the Snyder Cut comes out, though it will be released. This episode will be released after it. But yeah, I'm prepping for a live podcast about the Snyder Cut and I am dreading it. I'm dreading that I'm going to have to spend Four hours of my life. Well, more than four hours because I'm going to have to watch the Whedon cut and then I'm going to have to watch the Snyder cut when it comes out. So I'll be investing, what, seven hours of my life to this
8: endeavor. And yeah, it's I'm not looking forward to it at all. But Mike, it's going to change your life. This is the movie that everybody has been waiting for. And finally, we're going to get it and everything is going to be okay. Thank you so
0: much, guys, for being on the show. So, Mike, what's been happening with you? Oh, well, I'm just counting the days
7: till Justice League, clearly. And, James, what's happening under your yellow sun? Oh, over in the UK, it's all still doom and gloom. Each week seems to try and one-up and surpass the other in terms of horribleness. But, thankfully, we, we have cinema, we have music to keep these things going. Um, on, on In terms of Iron Sequel, the podcast, um, I, I kind of ebb and flow with with – how I feel it's going to go because it's it's literally just me doing the podcast, and when you rely on on people's schedules and, and commitments and what they can and can't do, and sometimes it it proves to be quite difficult. And as I said, I've I've been let down quite severely in by, by people I was really expecting to come on, and it it does really kind of knock you back. But then I have a discussion with Mike, and it kind of reinvigorates you to to carry on. So I've got. Pretty much a, a full schedule for for April, which is quite rare um, I have a friend of the show, uh, Noel Meller from Adventures in VHS um, He's coming on, um, we're going to be talking about Nightmare on Elm Street 3 I also have a, a fellow from a, a website in the UK called Reprobate Press and We're going to be talking on A Majesty's Secret Service, which I'm really looking forward to I have someone from Severin Films coming on as well, and they've picked a film that is so out of left field. I actually don't want to ruin it because when he told me, I was like, are you joking? And he was like, no, no. I was like, okay, right, we're going to run with it. And then there is a new Blu-ray label in the UK called Fractured Visions, and the owner of that is going to come on to be confirmed what film he's going to pick. But I'm hoping it's going to be something in the vein of The French Connection too. But yeah, aside from that, just taking day-to-day Family, career, children, it's it's all going on over here. So I really, really love this chat more than I can possibly put into words. And thank you very much for the time. And I am going to take you up on the counselor, by the way, because we have to talk about that. I need to talk the counselor with somebody.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, that's been on the to talk about list for a while. So let's, let's do it. 2022, here we come. I mean, it's certainly uh,
8: something. That's another one where I'm going to have to watch the original cut and then the director's cut. I think I've only seen the I've only seen the original. Maybe and maybe that was enough. But I, I know I'm curious about the director's cut. Yeah, it's, I uh, keep saying it's great. I don't. I didn't hate it when I watched it, but it was one of those movies where I'm just like, I think I enjoyed the idea of all the people I knew who would hate it. <laughs> I was <not> it.
7: <laughs> it's like the ultimate ultimate contrarians film. It's like you don't like it, but I do.
8: Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I have to say, also, James, I, I was very happy to hear you hear you mention Predator Two. That's, uh, <laughs> I'm a uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm oh, yeah. Dude, it's, it's
7: the big. I mean, there's a like I said, there's a few big hitters that I want to cover, and like, um, Death Wish Three is a, a real big one. Nightmare and on Elm Three is a big one, and I did get to talk Predator Two with with a very very good friend of mine uh, mm-hmm. from a podcast called The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, and it, yeah, it's. it's it's one of it's an all-timer for me i've got the quad the quad up in my cinema room sat there very very nicely it's a beautiful film (laughs) well thank you so much guys
0: for being on the show thanks to everybody for listening please head on over to the website projectionboothpodcast.com where you can find out more about today's episode you'll also find a link over to patreon where you can make a donation to the show every donation we get helps a projection booth take over the world